All right, here we go. Key Gilchrist is in. After the timeout, they were able to change up their personnel. Kawhi going at Key Gilchrist. Help comes from Cleveland. Morris has a three to take the lead, and he does. Wow. This is interesting now. They're going with Kawhi on Luka. He's done a good job on him. They'll get it into Luka. Way into the backcourt. They want him to get a running start. Hardaway's going to set the flat screen behind him to get him going to the rim. They get the switch. Luka attacks. No, they take the foul to give. And 3.7 left. That That's always a bad play call by Rick Carlisle to have him go way into the backcourt knowing they had a foul to give. Because, yeah, because you got to go early and make them give that foul up. Yeah, sometimes it can even be sort of a dummy action. All you're trying to do is get them to burn the foul. Well, and this is a big problem now. 3.7. Luka Doncic, his number one attack is getting to the rim. It takes him a while to get there. He's a, a slow stop and start kind of player. He's not really that great just taking a jump shot quickly off the dribble. He's got to kind of set it up with a bunch of dribble moves. I don't know if 3.7, he may be hard-pressed to do that. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's a little harder. Clippers are probably going to switch everything here right off I, the inbounds. And I might even consider, as soon as it gets into Luka, just sending the double team. All right, let's watch Luka. He's right at the top of the key. They're going to just try and inbound it to him with no screen. They do set the screen. He's at range against Jackson. Crosses over. He's got the step back for the win. What a wow. shot. Wow. Unbelievable. I asked whether he would have enough time to get that off, and he did. Incredible shot, and the legend of Luka Doncic grows. 43 points, 17 rebounds, 13 assists, 4 of 10 from 3, including the game winner in a game that Kristaps Porzingis didn't play. And remember, Luka plus 11 in a game his team only won by 2. They were killed so badly in the minutes he sat in the second. He, it was just a massive, massive performance from him. So that, Danny, is how we called it on the just-completed NBA cast, the game of the playoffs. Incredible work from Luka Doncic, a 135-133 victory by the Dallas Mavericks with Luka's ridiculous step back to win it over one. Reggie Jackson, his final line of 43 points, 17 rebounds, 13 assists, Two steals, seven turnovers, 18 at 31 from the field, four of 10 from three, including that last dagger. But maybe the most improbable thing about this game is that we thought in the first half, there's no way in hell we'd be talking about a game like this. You and I were frantically getting through our reads for this game because <laughs> Luca. so the, the Mavs were down 34-24 after the first quarter and Luca had played the entire first. So then he sits at the beginning of the second and we're freaking out because he comes back in the game. And he didn't they, look good in the first. He did not look good either, in the, the first. Way. And Luca comes back in the game and Lou Williams makes a free throw to put them down 52 to 31. The Clippers looked really strong as team. Dallas wasn't wasn't quite getting there. And so and they're shorthanded. Kristaps Porzingis was a stunning late scratch in this game due to a right knee issue. And their Dallas is because they're shorthanded. Handed. They're playing J.J. Barea, Justin Jackson, MKG, had, who's been a part of the rotation, had to play more minutes. And then it all turns around dramatically and cohesively, turns around dramatically enough that the Mavericks actually blow a significant lead and then still win the game. Yeah, that was the incredible part. They're up 11. They're up 7 with like 
two and a half minutes left it looked like it, it was all over but the Mavs clutch issues uh, reared their heads uh, again particularly offensively although no one will remember that in the end because they did not experience such issues in the overtime and yeah I mean that comeback in the second quarter from 55-35 to get it was a 23 to 11 run to get it to eight at half 66-58 what struck you about what changed in that comeback well one of the things that was was really interesting in this one was that because of Maxi Kleba getting in foul trouble he 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 had to come out for a portion of the second like really early on and honestly later on there were stretches of this too that was really the only way that the Mavericks like that was the best way for them to defend because he's a capable rim protector and more mobile than Boban but I thought that part of the story in that in that early comeback beyond Luca's just amazing brilliance was the play of some of their support players that was when Trey Burke had some big minutes I thought that Hardaway had a couple of big shots then and Seth Curry who out he, he was frequently guarded by Paul George and significantly outplayed Paul George in this game and so you saw those you saw those Mavericks players doing a really good job and a part of why they were doing a good job was that it's really hard to play small and the Clippers especially when Zubats was not on the floor which he was not for some significant stretches of that second quarter and a lot of the second half they just didn't have much resistance around the basket no they really didn't and Harrell is still working his way back in to be sure you know Lou Williams was outstanding offensively in this game and they needed his offense because really there was not much else working for them uh, offensively at times in this game but Lou was outstanding he hit five of his first six shots he staked him to that 20 point lead initially but they started going after Reggie Jackson I mean between Lou Reggie Jackson and Shamit Trey Burke and Seth Curry were just like eating at their mom's table and like getting seconds and asking for more pie they were getting whatever they wanted it was pretty remarkable and you mentioned the lack of help at the rim with Harrell as well and then Luca came back in and it seemed like he hadn't had that great of a half to begin with and then he you look up at halftime he's got 15 points and he really was able to get Harold timed out and the pick and roll uh particularly going into then the third quarter as they surged out to that lead and for the Clippers Kawhi didn't have the greatest first half but Paul George has been awful like he is the lowest field goal percentage of any player in the playoffs with more than 25 shot attempts right now what do you think it is with him right now I don't have a clear a clear explanation the the shots around the basket where some of those were a little bit tough but the jump shots mostly clean looks there were some that were a little bit forced but in this one you know I get I guess part of it is he hasn't been as confident as a driver also these the Clippers are playing a big a lot of the time so it is a little bit more contested so like George in this one he took more he took as as many three-pointers as he did inside the arc but he only took three shots in the paint and then he took 11 jump shots and missed all but two of those 11 and I thought he was finally getting it going when they were attacking in the overtime there was no help at the rim at all for Dallas we'll talk about all that obviously but then I have no idea how he missed that layup that's true in the last couple of minutes I and mean, he actually was... had a couple of nice interior passes but they required they required like a Zubats catch and finish which was a little bit tough and yeah it just it just didn't look quite right for Paul George and then one of the other big changes that happened it didn't happen in the second quarter it happened in the third was a tactical one from Rick Carlisle that we talked a lot about on the live show which was they started taking the ball out of Kawhi's hands by running by running doubles at him and saying yes the Clippers have other supporting talent but we're gonna let those 
those guys beat us. And so Kawhi Leonard, their best player by far overall. I mean, Lou Williams had his offensive moments in this one to be sure. But Kawhi Leonard, 22 shots in an overtime game. He did have 10 free throw attempts. But when you think about he's the best thing they have going, they just got it out of his hands and the Clippers weren't able to make the Mavericks pay. And that's a big part of how they not only made the comeback in the second quarter, but then had a 35 to 19 third quarter. Well, and it was an interesting counter, too, because I thought the adjustments from the Clippers in Game 3, which we haven't had a chance to talk about yet on this show, really worked a lot, right? We could talk about that a little bit for the context for this one, where they played Zubats more, he closed out the game. They started Shamet, which left them a little short of ball handling in the starting group. I think Doc Rivers had wanted to have a point guard out there, but with Beverly injured, that's a little bit harder. So, and Reggie Jackson and Lou, you know, Lou, they want to bring off the bench. So Shamit gave them some nice movement off the ball in that game and shot it pretty well. And they went with Zubac still because we talked about, hey, like, it seems like they only have three guys that they can trust right now in George... Marcus Morris Sr. and Kawhi. And so who are those other guys going to be? Well, that was Zubac and Shamit in game three. They also did a really nice job. This is when Porzingis was available of avoiding Zubac being on either Porzingis or Luka. They put Zubac on Finney Smith. And then when Finney Smith would screen, if they had to, they would switch Zubats onto Luka at least initially, and then someone would actually come and scram away the next closest defender on the wing to get Zubats onto that guy. So they had really good communication, really good plan. And Luka, of course, sprained the ankle in game three and you know was questionable for this game, but he was only four of 14 in that game. I thought Zubats being out there continued to really give him problems at the rim. He gave him problems at the rim again. Today, I think Luka had one finisher on it, but he also was just, you know, not able to get all the way to the rim and do those slow down finishes just because of Zubats' uh, great standing reach. And so the counter to that maybe was, well, it, Paul George is shooting poorly right now. They don't really have much other ball handling on the floor. This is not a great passing team. So why don't we double team Kawhi Leonard and say, we, we're going to force you Clippers to beat us with the pass. And I thought the Mavs rotations were outstanding. Trey Burke in particular, he and Curry were usually the guys they would just send the double basically right from the top of the key whenever Kawhi would try to get into an isolation area uh, below the free throw line and then those guys did a great job of sprinting to the opposite corner a couple of times like on those doubles I really they only got one or two good shots out of those situations I, I thought Right, and, and there, there was there yeah. was that crazy play where um, Burke doubled and then ran all the way to the opposite corner, and they never missed a beat. The Clippers couldn't move the ball fast enough to beat him back, and I thought that was a really important development, and I also thought there were a few real missed opportunities from Doc Rivers. The most obvious, I mean, I was going crazy during the broadcast about it, was Luka continued to be flummoxed at the rim when Zubats was in. That was true in Game 4, like it was in Game 3, but Rivers didn't match their minutes. He, there was a, there were a couple of important stretches in the fourth, and then I, I believe it was in the, the fourth and the second, and then there was a little bit in the third, where Doc shoehorned Harrell onto the floor, and Luka just got into rhythm. He was comfortable driving. A lot of his shots around the, in, in the paint were during those minutes, and why that was so egregious, first of all, like Harrell was worse than Zubats, but if you in, don't intend for Zubats to be in your closing lineup, then you can play him more. It's not it's not some sort of requirement that he can only play in those like minutes to start the half start the halves and so Zubats ended up plus nine in 22 minutes Harold negative 19 and while those are extremes honestly a lot of that was earned 
Oh, no, I, a, a thousand times it wasn't. It wasn't even that Zubac was good, but it was more that Harrell was so bad. I mean, and it, part of the reason for that, if you think about it, right, like Luca, part of the way his finishing is so good, you see this with like a Kyle Anderson or with joe ingles but luca has taken it to another level uh, with just uh, his overall power and body control some of the euro steps that he can do his stop and start is you could really just take the elasticity out of the jumps of the opposing players because you just go so slow it's really hard if you slow down you can't load up to jump you can't time it you can't block it in the air you almost end up just kind of standing there and so like Montrose Harrell actually isn't any taller than Luka Doncic is like he's got a 7-4 wingspan but Harrell is reliant on being able to load up and jump and time it to protect the rim and so if Luka with his great footwork and ability to decelerate takes that away Harrell really can't affect him at all whereas Zubac his height is going to be there whether he jumps or not because he's a he's enormous and so he really causes some more problems for Luca in those situations and and the irony of that is that you would think they could appreciate that because that's some of what's happening with Porzingis too like Porzingis doesn't have to jump but that doubt but the Clippers don't really have those same type of guys here is a, a good reflection of it now the supporting talent is not the same and the opposing talent is not the same in this game the Clippers had a 98 defensive rating when Zubats was on the floor and a 162 uh, uh, rating when Harrell was on the floor. And a lot of that, as you said, was earned. That wasn't all Luka minutes or anything silly like that. And you you just have to figure out, okay, this is the advantage. This is what we're taking away. And I, Doc will get plenty of heat for using Reggie Jackson as a defensive sub and some of the other decisions. And deservedly so like but that is a little bit more necessary because of their limited guard rotation with Patrick Beverly being out Harold playing when Luca is on the floor is completely avoidable especially if they're going to go small at first stretches of the game which the Clippers did and I thought was very effective yeah I, I agree with you there and now fair to note that Montrose Harrell is probably going to win six man of the year. He's been a stalwart for this team. They're trying to work him back into shape. They have a 20 point lead. So maybe that's the time to like get him out there, get him back in rhythm again. But yeah, once it became clear that things were going awry when he was out there, it was clear that they had to go back to Zubas. They took too long to do that in the second. And that really allowed the Mavs to get a lot of confidence going into the third quarter. Um, I mean, Trey Burke, who the hell is this guy? Like, he goes in the starting lineup. He was awesome in game one as well, although then he sprains his ankle, but he looks none the worse for wear. 25 points, 10 of 14 from the field, 4 of 5 from 3. And moreover, like, he's just blowing by guys. Like, remember when the problem with him was he wasn't athletic enough to finish? He wasn't athletic enough to get to the basket? He's just, like, completely cooking some of these Clippers guys who are trying to guard him. Seth Curry is, like, making one-on-one moves as well. An important part of that also, Trey Burke, 6 of 9 from 2. Seth Curry, 6 of 8 on 2 a lot of those right around the basket yeah and the Clippers do not have any other effective help defenders part of that's because the Mavs put a lot of shooting on the floor to be sure although they need to do a better job of helping off certain people as we'll talk about but other than Zubac there's really no one that the Clips have who's been an effective help defender in this series particularly now that they're putting I mean they put Kawhi and Luka for the last 17 minutes of the game basically so he's not a great help defender george is not you know right at the rim is not like that he likes to kind of dig in more from the elbows and george has not really had the impact defensively that you would have hoped in this series in addition to his offensive struggles but yeah i mean this is uh 
I still like the Clippers in this series. Let's see what happens if Porzingis can come back. I mean, that's troubling that he wasn't able to play today. But uh, I mean, this is just a heroic win for the Mavs considering all of the issues that they had. I mean, we're, we're going to go, this is a, really the first time we've done this in a while, but this is such a good game. We have to just go really possession by possession down the end of this. And don't worry, of course, we'll be getting to all of the other games from this weekend at least uh, the relevant ones uh, from the series that are, are still going on uh but we got a break here for an ad of course if you are a dunked on prime subscriber you already got this podcast early release as soon as we recorded it uh, on sunday and if you go to dunkedon.supportingcast.fm you can sign up for our pre-sale we'll be going four days a week subscription as of september 8th but you can get our special pre-sale pricing now. We're never going to be offering that pricing again, but you'll be grandfathered in at that pricing for your yearly membership forever. Or we will be offering monthly, of course, once it starts. But this pre-sale is only a yearly membership, but you get our best ever rate. And of course, if you are in a difficult financial situation, feel free to send us an email at dunkedonprime at gmail.com. Just give us a couple words about what's going on with you and we will green light you for a special less expensive tier that will be available as of September 8th. So uh, that's how the pricing is going to work on Dunked on Prime. We'll talk more about this after the break. So anything else you wanted to say about the meat of this game uh, before we get into uh, what was a classic ending in both the fourth quarter and overtime? Well, the thing I want to set the table for is that while the Clippers had gone with bigs almost the entire game, during crunch time, when they made a comeback, they were going with smaller guys at center the entire time. Yeah, I think that's uh, pretty important to say. It really was... They never really went back to Zubats in the fourth. They take out Harrell once they go down. And also, this is a, a big move from Doc, too. I thought he went back to Kawhi Leonard after only a two-minute rest. Kawhi ended up playing a ton of minutes in this game. Uh, it would have been 42 in regulation and then ended up at 47 for the game after the overtime. So he went back to him, and they're down eight. Harrell goes out, and yeah, they go to that Marcus Morris at center group. And early on, the Mavs just continued scoring at their expense. But then when they are up seven with about four minutes to go, they broke into the let's try and attack Lou Williams off the dribble and pick and roll every time. And Lou Williams, to his credit, did a really nice job of hedging and recovering without opening anything up for the roll man. And Luca was not able to get it to the roll man. That was often Finney Smith, uh, who is not a huge threat to attack off of a pick and roll. And so Luca, they would just end up dribbling around for 15 seconds trying to get the switch, not get it. And then Luca would have to throw some crap up going one on one against Kawhi. So they needed a better plan there. That really was the stagnation that led to the Clips getting back into things at the end there. It was, and then they ran into another problem in the very late going, which was they still had a, a decent lead, and when they did, what they were rushing some shots that weren't particularly good, and so at a certain point, you know, I, I brought up the, the phrase of perfect game, basically the Clippers, I think it was about two and a half minutes left, and they were down eight after a Tim Hardaway three, and part of the way you can not have to throw a perfect game out there is if the other team shoots a little bit early and doesn't make those shots now you don't want to play a prevent offense to be sure but it's being judicious knowing that like a pull-up two that's well contested with 15 seconds left on the shot clock burning those 15 seconds actually matter 
that matters and then the other thing that mattered was that with the Clippers going with Marcus Morris at center all of a sudden the Mavs had absolutely no help at the run basically anyone who wanted to drive and Lou Williams really took advantage of that uh, Seth Curry also had a terrible three-shot foul I always say when there's big comebacks at the end it's three-shot fouls and turnovers that end up doing you in they had some turnovers uh, as well Kawhi hit a huge three off a great save by Reggie Jackson out of bounds where they didn't get back. Um, but I thought this is one where maybe Carlisle could have done with a little bit different of an approach on Kawhi because you've Maxi Kleba, definitely the best one-on-one matchup against Kawhi. Like he can actually force him into some semi-difficult shots. Kawhi scored on him just fine, but anyone else, Kawhi is going to kind of overwhelm him. But your problem is that if you put Kleba on Kawhi, like a lot of big men, he can kind of do one or the other, right? Like he can guard a guy who's a really good threat, or he can be a pretty good help defender, but he's so worried about Kawhi, he wants to deny him out on the floor if he gives it up, that he's not fulfilling any help responsibilities whatsoever. And then your other guys on the floor are Doncic, Tim Hardaway, Dorian Finney-Smith, and Trey Burke or Seth Curry. And so none of those guys are great help defenders. Luka probably is the best help defender of anyone. He actually had, I thought, had a very nice defensive game overall with some steals and held up pretty well against Paul George and some isos. But uh, so what I would do in the future is take Kleba off of Kawhi just in those units. Just put, hell, put Tim Hardaway on him maybe even. And because and just say hey we're going to double team Kawhi anyway when he gets into the scoring zone and you know if he gets anywhere close within 15 feet we're just going to double team and then we're going to rotate out of that and then we'll at least have Kleba underneath who can provide a little bit of rim protection for us rather than just anytime Lou Williams gets by his man it's a wide open layup because there's no help right and and especially because there are times that Kawhi Leonard wouldn't have the ball in his hands at all and then you're you're not getting anything you're getting Kleba guarding Kawhi but not not affecting anything around the rim and it's a similar idea to doubling Joel Embiid instead of putting your best guy on him. That That's sort of an idea, and I think it actually can work really well for Kawhi, even though he's gotten improved as a passer, particularly given the limitations that the Clippers support players showed in this game. So where do you want to kind of start this? Because it's hard because there was the end of regulation and overtime. Yeah, let's uh, let's see here. So Dallas leads it after a Luka 3. They're up 7 with 317 left. And that was a, another ridiculous step back by Luka. They're up 8 after that Hardaway 3-pointer after Kawhi makes a layup. So 8-point lead with 244 to go. Reggie Jackson hit a ridiculous step back yeah that was the one in the the corner corner. yeah yeah which was a terrible shot they had time he like was in the corner and then he stepped back to his left even further into the corner and somehow hit that three and he you know he did hit some big shots and then they really went into what bill simmons used to call the clogged toilet offense where uh, luke had to take a step back over Kawhi. they don't get the switch and then the big play was that after that miss the ball gets kind of pinged around Reggie Jackson makes the save all the Mavs had gone after the rebound and Kawhi had leaked out on Luka nobody got back and Kawhi just like I mean, this is this is the shot, right, Danny? That you know, no one would have ever taken 15 years ago or 20 years ago. Where fast break, one on one, you're down five with two minutes left in the game, and Kawhi Leonard's just like, oh, I'm gonna just take a wide open three here instead of attacking, and cuts it to two, and then you know they're in a dogfight from that point on. Yeah, and then actually after after a kick ball, the next call was one that you and I both thought they should challenge. It was a very weak three shot foul call on Kawhi Leonard, and but Hardaway misses the first makes the other two so the lead goes back up to four with a minute 40 to go 
Yeah, and actually, the Clippers had used their challenge, which uh, okay. I had missed when we were doing the broadcast. They tried to challenge a Paul George foul up by 21 points so they didn't have their challenge and that to me would have been overturned because it was high five contact by Kawhi well after Hardaway had released the shot but Hardaway gets a couple of free throws to put him back up four Kawhi hits an awesome step back that was coming across the lane he pushed off on Kleba but no call was made on that one Luca misses a hard floater again after they tried to get the switch they couldn't do it and then that was the Seth Curry terrible foul that allowed the Clippers to tie it but importantly, on the Lou Williams three-shot foul. Lou Williams misses the third, and then the, the Clippers, the Clippers, I sorry, the Mavericks get the rebound, and so instead of it being a one-point deficit, it is a tie game. Then the Mavericks, with 48.1 left, somehow don't get the two-for-one. Again, they just got into that clogged toilet offense where they're just trying to get the switch, trying to get the switch. Finally, Seth Curry pops just, out and he, has to drive it, but and it's too late. And throws up that crap. Like, he was falling yeah. over to the side, but there was no right, time. No, it, I mean, and credit, again, to the Clippers for not falling into the trap of switching, at least those times, and forcing the role man, who was not necessarily a threat, to beat them and getting the ball out of Luka's hands or saying, Luka, you want to go one-on-one? against Kawhi so be it I I still think that the two things that you can do is an adjustment there we finally actually saw it on the last play of overtime when they took the foul to give is actually you set the screen flat like behind the guy who is trying to guard Luca, so that then he can get going downhill against whoever is guarding the screener but they didn't do that at this point it was too much side to side action Luca was missing the role man and or the other thing you do is just have Luca try and attack Kawhi one-on-one because the floor is so spaced they weren't getting any kind of help at the rim you know Marcus Morris was their rim protector he's not any good at that so uh but they didn't do any of those things and then Clips run the time down Kawhi I thought really could have gotten a better shot against Hardaway they did get the switch with the small small pick and roll with Lou Williams handling they had Kawhi set the screen and then pivot out the other thing actually that the Mavs could consider doing is having Luca be the screener uh and have Lou Williams man just attack off the dribble as well but uh, so Kawhi misses that he tried to redux the shot going to his right that he hit against Toronto or, or sorry against Philly last year a little higher out on the floor um, and so they went into overtime tied at 121 and the Mavs started scoring a little bit better you know T Trey Burke hit a huge three Finney Smith I mean I thought one of the key plays was that Finney Smith inbound play on the baseline Danny the baseline out of bounds with like yeah, three was, left on the shot it was shot three like, Kawhi blocked Trey Burke tried to get past Kawhi in an ISO didn't do it so he knocked it out with I think it was 3.8 left Finney Smith ends up in the scramble being guarded by Lou Williams and basically pushes him into the basket not a legitimate like a bump just because Lou Williams is tiny and gets gets the layup that ties the game after a Kawhi after a Kawhi make and it really honestly in that early part of it it was the Kawhi show for the Clippers but that didn't continue with their offense another big one was Trey Burke kind of hit a it was a late clock three and so it looked like they were there was again and a little bit more of the clock total remember the two baskets that the that the Mavericks made in the first half of overtime one was an opportunistic uh baseline out of bounds guy fall and then the other one was Trey Burke just kind of popping open in the corner for a second making that three and so in order instead of being behind by a little bit they actually had a one point lead yeah uh, uh, Burke had a, also like a scramble 11 foot pull up on the baseline that was big uh, and then Lou drives by him to for the and one and that puts him 
up two. That was a, a bad foul for Burke again. There was just throughout this entire time, there's no help at the rim. This all this period also included that George missed wide open layup that could have put the Clippers well, up three. And, 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 really and Moxie like the, Kleba missing a three that bounced like three times off the rim. Yeah, Kleba is really struggling. I mean, I think one of the adjustments that the Clippers need to make is, is guarding him a little bit less than they have been, particularly you know, it's been Morris on him, and Morris doesn't have great help in things, but he's got to they gotta make Kleba make some shots. But uh it really seemed like the Clippers were just getting to the basket every time and the Mavs are just struggling to try to find something because they still were trying to run this pick and roll stuff. They tried to get Luca off the ball a little bit, that helped. But uh, so here's a stat for you. John Schumann pointed this out. With one minute left in this game, Luka Doncic was 0 of 10 on the season on shots to tie or take the lead in the last minute of the game. He finished this game 3 of 13 on such shots. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, and the yeah, f- he... he, he yeah, go ahead. The first one of those, he I, I believe that was the one where he just kind of moved Marcus Morris out of the way. And like it, it was a great job with pace. That might have been the second one. I'm trying to remember if that was the first that, one. That was the second one. Yeah, Kleba actually set him up for uh, a quick little like seven footer uh on the, where they got him going to the rim a little bit more uh to tie it at a buck thirty. Kawhi missed as they they tried to get the two for one. He missed out of a timeout a, a short nine footer. And uh, it was so quick, we thought we thought Dallas might get the two-for-one, but no. Second time in this game that yeah. Dallas didn't go hard enough and get a two-for-one, but Luka ended up making that layup past Marcus Morris to give them a two-point lead with 19 seconds to go. Yeah, beautiful left-to-right spin move, and again, there was just no help whatsoever from the Mavs, and there's there were guys out there that they could have helped off. I mean, Klebo was really struggling. So the end of this, uh, and you heard it in the open, we talked about it a little bit, but Kawhi drives. They actually went for defense. They put MKG on Kawhi. He gets into the lane in pretty much a one-on-one situation. Kleba, who is probably like, oh, thank God I'm not guarding Kawhi. I can actually help now. He just leaves Marcus Morris. And when you're up two, giving up the wide open corner three, that's bad because a two-pointer, that's not the end of the world. Like you, A, you're still having above 50% win percentage if you give up the two to tie it because A, you have a chance to go back and score at the end of the, that period. And then you also still have a 50% chance in theory of winning in the next overtime as well. So the two-pointer doesn't kill you too much that's part of why the math is so good on going for a three in those situations they did not go for a three but Kleba helps and then Kawhi was absolutely brilliant he's grown so much as a passer in the last year or so he did he had Dorian Finney-Smith on the backside and there were two wing shooters that he had to decide between Finney-Smith was guarding I want to say it was Paul George it was Paul George and uh, on the left wing and Morris is in the corner and so normally what you're you would do is you X out, right? You go and take the first pass, which is usually going to be to the corner. And then the next guy, that would have been Klebo, who had helped initially, he'll get out to that second pass because it takes long enough for those passes to happen that he can get out there. But Finney Smith, Kawhi looked him off, looked at George, and then no looked it in the corner to Marcus Morris. So that left him wide open for the three to put him up one. And it looked like, again, it was going to be a clutch disaster well, for the Mavs. And, and there was a, a big clutch disaster decision that came right after this from Rick Carlisle. We didn't catch it at the time, but the Clippers had a foul to give. And yet the Mavericks didn't run a quick action. You, This is a very common thing now where you basically just get them to burn the foul to give. You, you do something quick, not 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 your 
your play call, just throw throw it in, just move, do something to get them to burn that. Instead, they throw it into the backcourt, go slow motion, and so instead of there being nine seconds yeah. left for the final play, it's only 3.7, and we wondered if Luca was going to have enough time to get it off. Yeah, and it was a good play call. He set that flat screen. Yeah, it was a great play and call. And got him going against Reggie Jackson, but they took the foul. Doc Rivers loves the foul to give, and sometimes I don't like the foul to give, but in this situation where Luca was attacking with the head of steam, it was the perfect time to use it. Uh, and it would have been a good play call if they hadn't had the foul to give, but they did. And then, though, I mean, the personnel that was out there, it was no Zubac, which, okay, they got some shooters on. I guess that makes sense. I mean, I, I know that this guy has been on ice for the whole game, although I actually maintain that maybe they should give him a shot. Uh, like, Roddy Magruder is a good defensive player that they have, that they signed. They're paying him $5 million a year. Uh, Reggie Jackson already gotten cooked. They've got Shaman out there who's been cooked a number of times as well. So Reggie Jackson, Shamit, and then the big three of George Leonard and Marcus Morris Sr. And also Doc Rivers really likes to switch in end of game three situations i mean although they were obviously only down one which made their job a little easier so rick carlisle dialed up the right play and probably what he's saying in the huddle is all right whoever reggie jackson is guarding you're going to set the screen he's because they don't know exactly who reggie jackson is going to guard but they had been finney smith they're like all right finney smith you set the screen for luca and we want to get reggie jackson onto him and you definitely got to question the strategy to not get it out of luca's hands at that point you yeah. question the strategy to switch on that play to put Reggie Jackson onto him. And like I said, Luca generally, you know, he kind of has to like put guys in the mix a little bit. Like he doesn't really like to just straight pull up really quickly on a quick release. But, and I was like, is he going to have enough time to get to that setback? Reggie Jackson fell for the drive right. There wasn't really time for Luca to drive all the way to the rim at that point, but he fell for that fake, fell for the setback for a second time. He'd already got his ankles broken on that same move earlier in the game. And Luca hit just a ridiculous shot that we are always going to remember. And a 40 point game with a buzzer beating winner. That is a very short list of guys in NBA history, including uh, his opposite number, Kawhi Leonard in this game, who have done that. Uh, uh, just an awesome game and hopefully the first of many for Luka Doncic. And there's a, a tactical element of this that I want to delve into a little bit because I'm sure it'll happen again in the playoffs, which is you and I have talked a lot at various moments in time about there are certain certain circumstances where you want to throw everybody at the offensive or defensive glass because the other team is guaranteed to call a timeout. In this circumstance, when there's three seconds left when the ball is inbounded, if the other team has a clear-cut best player, think about how long it takes for them to grab the ball, make a pass to somebody else, and have that other person take a shot. Now, you don't want to give up like a layup up or something right around the basket but i think teams are way too reluctant to double or to do something else there to force a pass especially when it's a heliocentric team like the mavericks like it, you you can get into those circumstances and there will be times that you get burned by it absolutely just like i mean you could think, go back to carlisle fouling up fouling up up three in, in in the game against the rockets you know like there are times where even a, a correct strategy can go poorly but i just think teams don't do that nearly enough that they allow they can concede something better because of this like strange fear that they don't think about how long thing things take to happen yeah that's something that i think coaches should absolutely practice of like game it out all right what is the number on the clock when you can just sprint at a guy and bother him with knowing that it's going to take too long to pass it to somebody else um adjustments 
So next game, we've hit on a number of them here, but any others that pop well, up? Well, I'm going to reemphasize it. Montrezl Harrell should not be on the floor when Luka Doncic is on the floor. Just straight up. That yeah. that should never happen. Even, yeah. even Go to Michael Green at center. Like, this is a real series now. This isn't about Montrezl Harrell getting back into things. Like, you need to win this series. You could, you got next series that's not going to be nearly as hard as this one if you need it. Uh, so that's a big one. Hopefully, Porzingis can play, so then the Mavericks can take some of their, their inadequate players, like Justin Jackson, out of the rotation. That yeah, way, the, there, there's a real cascade effect there. Really is. Um, and then, you know, I, I think from, from Dallas's perspective, I, I think that the doubles on Kawhi that they did and then went away from, I think that that can work really well, especially in specific circumstances. Um, also, yeah, the idea- what, what they were doing is it was more, those doubles were taking place when he would try and get the ball off the catch yes. below the free throw line. I, I might even try to expand on those I would. just a little bit. Well, and especially in, in a circumstance where Kleba is the only big on the floor, and, and then because then you can take him off of Kawhi. Now, hopefully Porzingis can play, and then you don't have Kleba necessarily as the only big on the floor. Then he's functioning kind of in a way as a four slash three in that circumstance rather than also your biggest dude. But yeah, that's, that's one change I'd make for them. For the Clippers, they are really missing Patrick Beverly, but knowing that Reggie Jackson is not a good defensive player anymore is a very important revelation. He's better than Lou Williams, but not dramatically. Lou Williams actually had a couple of defensive plays in the series. Not I, I mean, Lou Williams, it, like they had less success attacking Lou Williams and Reggie in part because the strategy was to let Reggie switch where Lou Williams, they aren't switching him on in, under any circumstance. Well, and also like they could have had Zubats on the floor and some of those last, but they could have done, I could have had him guarding the inbounder. You know, a, lot of, a lot of different possibilities there instead of having Reggie Jackson, a defensive negative out there um i don't know what you do to get paul george going i know that they that doc did some nice things earlier in the bubble and maybe you you give some of those opportunities but i don't think paul george is like missing mostly terrible shots he did have one hero ball shot late in the fourth quarter i invoked victor oladipo where a player was trying to play hero ball when he's not even the best player in his own team um but it's I think some of that is just you have to hope that it comes around, you know, kind of like the Lakers have done with Anthony Davis and like they did on Saturday, where you put a player in a chance to succeed, sometimes they're going to fail, but you bet on their talent. Yeah, a couple other things uh, that I could point to here, you know, I'd like to see him close it with Zubats and see if they can defend. For Dallas, particularly at the end of games, I would like to try and see them do try a couple things. One would be maybe you run some dummy off-ball screening action for Luka and then put the ball in the hands of either Curry or Burke against Lou Williams. And while that screening action goes on, just have that guy blow by Lou Williams for a layup. Um, you could also just screen Luka off the ball with the guy the defender and like you know have him curl into the lane or something like try to get some quick hits at the rims especially because they don't really have much help available there for the clippers make maxi kleba hit some shots he's really really scuffling right now and you know i'd still like to see for the clippers that Shamit and Zubach lineup really worked pretty well. I'd like to see them go back to that a little bit. Uh, Marcus Morris could probably play some more minutes, you would think. He only played 30 in regulation, and he's a good player for them, obviously. Um, I think that's about all I've got right now on this one. We've gone we've gone about 40 minutes, So, uh, but, I mean, this is a classic. It deserved it. And also a reminder, our next NBA cast will be for Game 5 of this series on Tuesday. That is scheduled. 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. There we go. 
right, let's talk a little Utah and Denver right now. The first ever playoff game with a Jamal Murray garbage time hit in which two players had 50. It was actually the first playoff game in which two players had 45, in fact. And one of the other classics that came to mind for me was LeBron and Paul Pierce in Game 7 in 2008. Obviously a much different era with a slightly different level of defensive teams <laughs> in that game uh but donovan mitchell also the third time that a player has had 50 in two games in a series joining michael jordan against the cavaliers and alan iverson against i believe the raptors in I, I will add the, a couple of people had that tweet we should add will chamberlain because will chamberlain is always a part of this it's just a different era no i think he had 50 twice in a playoff run maybe that's it but maybe it wasn't I'm... in the same series and jordan had 50 twice in the 93 playoffs but it, yeah it was not in the same series Got i it. believe yeah and and I, I think the most interesting kind of takeaway there there are two of them that i think go together so we said after the horrendous effort that denver put out in in game three that and, and you could listen for dunked on prime subscribers they they got that we did a friday pod just on that game because we did it for the live show and had lots of thoughts and so we put that out there that basically that denver yeah. had run through every pick and roll coverage they hadn't run through quite every one of them and we actually saw a new one in this game yeah this time and i mean i thought it like sort of worked like a little bit i mean they still gave up a 140 defensive rating but it actually required some like really good shoot they at least didn't give up like a billion three-pointers this time so what they're trying to do was basically they told Nikola Jokic, you are not going to leave the immediate area of the rim under just about any circumstances and so what we're going to do is we're going to have guys pinch in from the wings when a pick and roll is run to try to bother mitchell just enough that way we'll have whoever's guarding it go over the top try and rear view contest and donovan mitchell if you want to take a shot at the free throw line if you want to take a floater you're going to be more open than you can ever be on an nba basketball court within 15 feet of the basket but we are going to not give up three pointers i thought mitchell did miss some chances to find guys just one pass away on the wings because he's you know that's usually not your read in that situation right like the usual defenses just stay home on those plays because it's such an easy pass to make but Mitchell maybe wasn't looking for that in some respects but he was unbelievable and just incredibly efficient I thought in the second half they actually the defense in him wasn't that bad if they just could have avoided fouling which uh, of course they couldn't and uh they put him to line for a, a ton of shots and Mitchell I think he had 19 in the fourth quarter and Jamal Murray had 18 we'll talk about his game in a second so they did try something else it like sort of worked particularly in the first half where you know it took like a really good jazz shooting performance on not as many threes to beat them although the jazz still even without boy and have really good spot up shooters like mike conley is an awesome spot up shooter for a point guard uh, but they held him to four of nine at the rim at least in the first and they got 11 of 16 on their own in that first half but it still it just still seemed pretty unsustainable particularly because it was so reliant on murray hitting completely ridiculous shots uh, on his end and it certainly feasts or famine for him uh but that's what it's taken for them to him to just go completely crazy for them to be in games even in this series and uh i i don't really come away from this 
and obviously it's 3-1 now so it's probably over anyway but I didn't come away from this thinking that Denver had particularly found anything that these were great adjustments they did get Porter out of the starting lineup but and that you know they did it they picked off a little bit of low-hanging fruit but the Jazz clearly to me still seem like the much better team out there right and I think this is a way of maybe delaying the inevitable but it doesn't as you said solve everything and I think moving Porter out of the starting lineup also Torrey Craig didn't start so it was it was Monte Morris Jamal Murray Grant Millsap Jokic was the starting five for the Denver Nuggets. And I mean, a way, the way you put it, and I'll give the final number on this, you said it when it was earlier in the game, Denver put up a 136.6 offensive rating and lost. And uh, one of the big parts you brought up, fouling, Donovan Mitchell, 17 of 18 from the free throw line, and his only miss was basically as the game was pretty much out of hand and looking closer because of a Jamal Murray three. And that was a, bit, a big part of it. There were some genuine legit beefs. I mean, there were some bad calls to be sure, but I don't think it was like a pattern of, a pattern of terrible stuff. There were a few, though, that I, that I disagreed with, including Jamal Murray legitimately getting fouled on one of the key plays late in the game. Yeah, they definitely had some beef with the officiating. First, in the fourth quarter, Murray should have had a four-point play when he was run into shooting a three by O'Neal. They didn't call it. And then they basically make the same call two minutes later in favor of Conley in the corner, late clock. He gets three free throws. And then Gobert on a Murray layup attempt that could have cut it to two inside of a minute. He goes vertical at first. That's what the rest were looking at. But then he actually came down and hit the wrist of Murray on the layup. And uh, Murray definitely had a beat there. That should have been two free throws uh, for him. Uh, but I mean, it, just the Herculean effort that it took for Denver to be this close. I mean, some of the crazy threes that, that Murray was hitting, the possession game where they almost never turned it over. They also destroyed them on the offensive glass. Not only offensive rebounding, but second chance points, 27 second chance points. And some of that was Utah, just not enough effort from their perimeter guys running down long rebounds, although some of them were a little unlucky as well. Um, So everything really went right for Denver in this game, other than the Jazz three-point shooting. And they still, and they just have no chance of stopping these guys. Like they they have to get better offensively and they were really awesome offensively. And as you mentioned, they still weren't close. Here's my favorite. They were close, but... Yeah. They still uh, lost. Yes, thank you. Yes, uh, here, lost here, is what here, they did. Here's my stat of this game. Denver had a 116 offensive rating in half court, and that was the inferior offensive rating in the half court. Utah, 120.5. Both of those are completely ludicrous. And neither team really did anything in transition. So you would say, bam, like, it's crazy that they, that, they, that they were this efficient when they had nothing in transition, but that's what happens when you have 115-plus offensive ratings for both teams in the half court. And... I think another important kind of like maybe I don't know if it's an unsung hero considering he scored 24 points off the bench but Jordan Clarkson's 15 points in 15 minutes in the first half I thought was really was really important in that kind of in that stretch as Denver you know we talked about their offense in the early part of this game I thought that you know him dropping that kept things kind of kept things competitive. Yeah, Denver, I think their largest lead was eight at 43-35. And then Clarkson really went to work at nine of 13 from the field. A more efficient performance than you usually see from him. Four of seven from three. And some of those were some pretty tough looks. But he was just able to work into the lane against smaller players. Jokic wasn't going to provide much resistance against him. And then defensively, I continue to laud the help defense that he's provided. He had a big play late after he got called for kind of a BS offensive foul on a Spain pick and roll screen against Jokic, where Jokic went for a spin move and Clarkson came over, double teamed him, forced a jump ball late in the clock. He had another, a number of just very nice 
help rotations, which, you know, Jordan Clarkson is not known for that previously in his NBA career, but he also hasn't really had great defensive coaching until uh, this point in his career. And he also, I think, is just empowered with this team in a way that he wasn't, say, in his last playoff run with Cleveland when it was LeBron, LeBron, LeBron. Something else that I thought was striking in this game was, especially Joe Ingles, like a lot of the Utah starting role players just being comparatively quiet on the floor, like rough game for Royce O'Neal overall. Compared, He's done well in a lot of these games. Joe Ingles was was really a non-entity for me for a lot of it and yeah i mean he did he just didn't get the reps frankly like yeah they didn't and they didn't need him but like i mean he was i mean four shots for him three shots for royce o'neill both both of them played 35 plus I mean, you can't complain when Conley, Conley, Mitchell, and Clarkson are combining for over 100 points just on their own. Right. And and all of those guys shot better than 50% from the field. Yes. Much, much better, especially when you consider the true shooting. And Mike Conley, and I mentioned his excellent three-point shooting. He doesn't get as many reps on the ball and pick and roll either, in particular because even on the second union, he's playing with Clarkson. But uh, he's been extremely efficient in these last two games with uh, 26 points tonight four of eight six of six from the foul line the four of eight was from three and he has really been actually in the bubble when he's played the guy that they actually traded for he's been that good now like his he's a pick and roll technician he's starting to get the chemistry with gobert only 32 minutes in this game i think in part because clarkson had it working but snyder didn't really have to overextend his guys the way that malone did with murray and 43 minutes so Gobert played the most for the Jazz uh, with 39. And I mean, do you agree with me? Has he been now? Because I think at one point you called him your most disappointing player of the season early on. And then he had the hamstring issues. Like, is he back to you as far as like the guy that they wanted to have on this team? Yeah, I, I, I it's not exactly the role that I anticipated, but in terms of overall player quality, yeah, I'd say I'd say he's just about there. I also want to mention, uh, especially in the like the first half, Paul Millsap, 14 points. I thought that it was the, the best he's looked offensively. He had some nice defensive moments too. And so I, I was encouraged to see a good Millsap game, especially when that goes on top of a, a strong offensive performance from Jamal Murray. Yeah, definitely. And Murray, a little bit more on his game as he hit a 50, a, a, another ridiculous three, frankly, at the end. Also had 11 rebounds and four offensive rebounds. That kind of shows you. I and mean, some of these perimeter guys just had a crazy number of rebounds for Denver. But 18 and 31, 9 of 15 from three. And I think the one thing to me that stood out about Murray's games in the bubble against a pretty good defensive team and they switched Royce O'Neal onto him whenever Ingles was on a man was he cooking Joe Oof. Ingles like crazy but 15 three-point attempts in this one and the other big game that he had was nine three-point attempts and one of my concerns about Murray has been well he's not taking enough threes he came out of Kentucky he was supposed to be this great three-point shooter uh, but and do more off-ball stuff as well coming off of screens for threes which we haven't seen as much of either for him although Malone did dial up an ATO for that in the fourth quarter which looked pretty good but so I think there is some hope here now those other two games he played games two and three where he didn't do anything uh those those ones count too let's not forget about those he can be very inconsistent but showing this level of explosiveness against a solid if not elite defensive team it is encouraging for him going forward here should we talk at all about Jokic's game we talked about the scheme stuff but I offensively you know totally fine nothing but but not the same force that we saw you know like an all-nba caliber player in the regular season no, I thought that he was better in this one. And one of the things that we said in our pod for subscribers on Friday, dunkedon.supportingcast.fm 
by the way, to uh, sign up there and get special early bird pricing before we go fully live on September 8th and we go four days a week subscription for the main show. He did attack Gobert early. He had like that quick spin move for a dunk. He actually had three dunks in this game. Uh, Went at him a couple times more, but Murray had it going so much that they didn't have to rely on him as much. But one thing I did think was good was three of 10 from three and yeah, that's only 30%, but taking enough of those to get Gobert out of the lane. One thing they actually did, Utah, very late, and the Nuggets did this as well, was rejigger the matchups. They actually went with two smalls, putting O'Neal on Jokic so that they could switch any Murray and Jokic action and then have Gobert away from the rim. And so Murray drove the lane. That's when Gobert came that with that help at the rim verticality and ended up following him, but got away with it uh, on that play. So, and then Denver did the same thing where they put Jokic on Royce O'Neal and tried to have Millsap on Donovan Mitchell, which uh, led to some interesting fireworks between uh, Millsap and Donovan Mitchell in the last couple of minutes, which yeah, you I mean, enjoyed. You, you mean the block at a stare down and then Donovan Mitchell drilling a three in his face that almost ended the game? Yeah. Well, first off, Donovan Mitchell beats it once already for a layup. That's right. Yeah. Then he blocks him out of bounds and Millsap talks a lot of shit. The, uh, this is uh, Donovan Mitchell has 41 points and, and the team has about a 140 defensive rating at this point. And then they switch Mitchell onto him or, or Millsap onto him and he hits what was basically, I mean, you, they had to keep scoring because everyone had to always keep scoring in this game, but uh, they basically got it to where Denver never had a chance uh, to tie or take the lead after that Mitchell three. They're only up one at that point, under two minutes remaining. I, I've got a few more notes here. Anything else that popped out to you at all? No, I, I, I think that's I think that's about it for me. I mean, you brought up the the uh, I mean the the possession game here, like with the offensive rebounds and all that. I just wanted to make sure it was completely ridiculous in this one with Denver only turning it over six times and grabbing seven, 17 offensive rebounds. Yeah, Malone was on fire with the ATOs in the second quarter when they surged out to their biggest lead. He got a couple of nice back cuts, including one for Porter out of an ATO. Then he had that Murray off ball three in the corner in the fourth. The fake DHO uh, with Jokic and Murray, because when Murray was on fire, he did a great job of knowing that everyone was going to be super attuned to Murray and then had Jokic just roll right in for a dunk uh, on that play. So he was definitely on fire. Now, you know, when teams are scoring 1.4 points per possession in the game so and those crazy half court offensive rates it's a little easier to look good on, on your atos but they were getting really nice open looks uh, okay. out of pretty much everything that that he was running so you know i i thought that he got them to about as good of a place as he could now it took until game four to get there also not starting porter i mean as soon as he goes in they and porter has to play i mean they got to get some minutes out of him i would have tried to make all of his minutes be when mitchell was out of the game but immediately when he comes in mitchell is in there they go at him to first mitchell drives forces help sets up a three then he hits a mid-range round and then he gets fouled the first three possessions they go at him every single time uh at one point george yang blew by yeah. porter for a, a layup um and even when in the second half they tried to send double team help for Porter out beyond the three-point line Porter couldn't execute that either he just let Mitchell go the opposite direction from the double team to drive in and create another play so uh I think you know I got asked on Twitter like does Malone like not see this I'm like yeah of course he sees it like he he had to take him out of the starting lineup as a result but you know they're not going to win this series I think that was clear even during during this game unless something really changes with the injury situation and they're talking about getting Gary Harris back but as you know we're skeptical that, that he's gonna yeah that was ahead. clear during game three i mean yeah. that was just such a that the series was functionally done at that point barring a as you said like a transformational yeah. I, I mean things can change you know we have seen teams just look really bad but you know it just looks like they're just 
they're so drawing dead defensively right now i mean they can you know if, if they go crazy on offense maybe they can luck into some wins but it's like you know the median in this game in this series seems to be like jazz by 15 or the average and then you get like yo-yoing around that point so maybe denver if they play really well and it's super close they might pull out a victory but they could also lose by 30 or 40 points on the other side of that as we've seen but um you know obviously it's not time to give up on the series particularly down 2-1 you don't do that but i do think that porter he's a big part of their future if they want to go anywhere he's gonna have to get better defensively and i think getting embarrassed like this like hopefully is gonna motivate him a a little bit and he has to play anyway like taking him completely out of the rotation probably is not realistic at this point in time but 23 minutes yeah you know maybe that's a little much for for michael porter the way he's playing defensively here a couple other notes oh god yeah sorry um you know, Jawan Morgan, Snyder has been using him more as a defensive replacement. He put him in on Millsap when Millsap was hot, and he didn't do anything offensively, but at least was able to get a rebound, uh, uh, made a, a couple of nice plays when uh, his guy set an elevator door screen, and he was able to switch out and take away a three-pointer. Uh, I loved how Quinn Snyder went back to Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. Down, or they're up eight with like three minutes gone by in the fourth and he actually went back to his guys before Malone went back to his star at Jokic although Murray had was played the entire second half so that's part of why they did that but I thought that was a good move to just really go for the juggler up 3-1 uh the clear path followed by Millsap was yes. an absolute killer and it's another example of why clarifying cleaning up the rule would help a lot because like did, if you take those fouls out of it entirely then it's not a problem also the reviews are eternal yes not a big fan uh quinn snyder had a nice ato himself where they had clarkson set a screen which they'd been doing to try to get the switch onto mitchell but instead they actually had clarkson roll to the basket and mitchell found him with a beautiful angled bounce pass and clarkson got a three-point play out of that in the fourth quarter that was really good and i think that's about all i got on this game but uh it's been a really fun series i mean game one and game four uh were both awesome awesome games <laughs> really really enjoyable and so it seems like the series could be just about over here and but you know we like nba basketball we missed it so we'll, we'll cover game five unless it's just a total blowout unless it's like game three um but <laughs> let's let's jump to rockets thunder a game that was go- concluding as we were starting the uh live show of lakers blazers on saturday night and there are a couple different angles to take on this game you and i won't focus as much that we'll, we will talk about some of the histrionics and the referee baiting and all of the 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 high frustrating drama at the end of the fourth quarter of this one but I-, I thought in some ways the most interesting drama of this was not only james harden versus lou dort but also billy donovan figuring out how to use lou dort yeah that was fascinating right because lou dort really stopped james harden harden had a great first half but did a lot of it when Dort was not out there. Now, of course, Dort has major problems of his own uh, because he can't shoot the ball at all. But I really think that the Thunder, they're not going to score that efficiently against this Rockets defense. They've done some things better. We'll get to that uh, as they've adjusted. I think they're doing about as good as they can. But they're just, they're not built to really just destroy this Rockets defense. And so they had to get better defensively as well. And I think that's a, a 
good idea for them particularly because Dort is really stopping Harden and Harden at this point you know I mentioned previously how he's almost become this caricature now it seems he grows more that way rear like if you go back to 2017 as recently as then it wasn't really this ISO stuff he would take the step back every once in a while but it was pick and roll it was uh, they had Eric Gordon and Ryan Anderson in the starting lineup it was spread pick and roll we're gonna have Capella roll to the rim James Harden can get downhill he can finish at the rim but his finishing is really eroded at this point and that's part of why he's gone to this ISO stuff because he would rather just shoot the step back draw some fouls here and there or maybe drive and then kick out to some shooters finishing against a real contest at the rim is just not something that he's going to do anymore he's got to just get a perfect angle and that's while everyone focused on Westbrook I think it's hardened too where it's really hard for him to finish if there's a center around the rim at this point and so the way they've spread the floor has helped him a lot but Lou Dort is just guarding James Harden one-on-one like he cannot beat him one-on-one they are not helping uh Doris Burke talked about on the broadcast that he doesn't need the help like don't help him make James Harden actually beat him and Dort is not going for the fouls his strength is so important because Harden it's really kind of more about strength than quickness against Harden because Harden wants to knock you off with his shoulder or a semi-legal forearm and then create space for the step back Dort is not letting him do that and that led of course to the dilemma that you referred to of what is Billy Donovan going to do at the end of the game and a good example of that is that the Thunder had a ridiculous 79 defensive rating when Dort was on the floor for 36 minutes and 40 seconds great this was an overtime game but he also had the lowest offensive rating on the team 89 and part of that is because when he's on the floor the Thunder sorry the Rockets will dare him to shoot and he can't make those shots Dort was zero for six on three pointers and you think about the record scratches and all the times that his band was two for eight in in game two and he missed his first five right and so with Dort it it is that real challenge of of how do you square these two things I wanted to bring up one more thing though before we get into all that with Harden as a caricature of himself is also him turning down wide open mid-range shots you know it's kind of like yeah this this old trope about you know analytics hate the mid-range shot and all stuff it's like no well and he actually is doing that like like that is a straw man in almost all circumstances but that's what he's doing you know and James Harden like you know he hit he hit a game winner going back in 2016 you know from mid-range against the Warriors in the playoffs and but then just when D'Antoni came it's like he's never gonna take it but like he's wide open on these shots and like all you need is just it's binary score or not score at the end of a close game like this it's that's more important than your expected points per possession is just I would rather have you know a 50% chance at a two than a 40% chance at a three in some of these situations because it's just simply whether you have scored or not and continued to put pressure on the opposition continued to make it a two possession game well and that's the juxtaposition of Harden with his former teammate Kevin Durant. Durant is more of a pragmatist and is basically like, if this is the best I can do, I'm going to take it. And Harden, it's more, he's more of a, an extremist of these are the only things I'm going to do. Yeah. And again, the other thing that I think is a real problem for the Rockets, and they're still going to win this series, I think. Let's, I'm not going crazy here, but I thought it's just a, a fascinating look at what's become of the Rockets and also has some implications as they go forward, particularly against the Clippers, is you know the Thunder are not switching. Now, they are not going to switch Dort off of him. Dort gets through these screens, and you know Houston doesn't really have like like devastating role men. We talked about that in the Mavs-Clippers recap, that these small, small pick and roll, 
Bulls, you know, if you play it conventionally, are you really going to have like a devastating role man? You know, who is there some awesome pick and pop shooter that the Rockets have? Or, you know, maybe they should, it should be Eric Gordon, but he's being guarded by a good defender as well, generally. So they're not. And so what James Harden needs to be able to do is to attack that with a conventional pick and roll type of game. And he doesn't want to do that anymore because he can't get to the basket and finish. And there isn't someone rolling to the rim the way you would in a normal conventional pick and roll defense. And so, you know, I do think the Rockets are going to need to find some adjustments here, whether that's screening off ball, using Harden as the screener has worked pretty well in that Jeff Green play, but they can't go to that too often. Uh, The 5-1 pick and roll uh, with Harden screening for Jeff Green at the foul line. Um, And they they lost their discipline on that a few times, forcing Green to his left, so they should do. But Green actually got through and got a dunk going left uh, late in the game. He's been awesome, by the way, in this series. Mm-hmm. So they, they do have some issues. Like it re- like Harden does not want to, you know, there isn't that Clint Capella rolling to the basket. And he used to be a great, great pick and roll player, but he just kind of isn't anymore. From the OKC side, another effective, effective game from Shea, 9 of 18 from the field, 3 of 7 from 3, 23 points. And Schroeder, like, it was just shocking to see how, like, his usage, I mean, you remember he's often, not always, but often on the fourth great players, 23 shots, 39 minutes, Grant, because because the closing lineup stuff. And the other just big thing with Schroeder, I, th- I thought that he was, you know, effective offensively, especially getting towards the basket. Houston's lack of rim protection can be a real challenge there. But for whatever reason, Billy Donovan or the OKC scheme, assistant coaches, whatever it is, they think Dennis Schroeder is a far more competent player defending James Harden than he is. That's been true the entire series. Yeah. Yeah, and you know it's just Harden takes one dribble to his left, and then he just plows through him for a layup. They they went to that with about three minutes left when when Donovan went to what's normally his closing group with the three guards Gallo and Adams. And after that play, he went back to Jordan. Actually, took Gallo off the floor. Uh, they and Gallo was only four of twelve in that game, although he did have twenty points with his usual bullshit free throw drawing. Much of that came in the first half, but and with Dort at the four that worked pretty well for them to come back and let's talk about the end of the game here and some of these plays we've got a few more larger points that we can draw from that but Houston's up five Schroeder hits a three out of an iso to get it back to two and then Harden gets a drive to set up a Tucker three in the corner so they're up five with under a minute remaining and then Chris Paul went to work and he did it completely at the expense of James Harden. First, a couple of minutes earlier, he had drawn Harden's fifth foul. So Harden was uh, not interested in defending here. And so three times, actually four, in the last minute of the game, the Thunder got four possessions. Chris Paul just went as fast as he could at James Harden. First, he got a layup in about five seconds. When you're up five, you do not want to give up a shot in five seconds going full, the other team going full court. Then... Next time down, he draws help, easy dish to Steven Adams to bring him within one after Houston didn't score on the other end. And then there was the crazy play. First, Paul fouls Harden and an away from the play foul before it's inbounded. Harden hits a free throw. Houston up two. Then Eric Gordon got locked up as they denied on the inbound. Again, Houston maybe could have called a timeout to advance it into the front court. They didn't do that. Although the league did later rule that Gordon was fouled in that inbound. But yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it, uh, it goes out of bounds. OKC gets it back. And then, hey, guess what? Chris Paul is going to go one-on-one at James Harden, blow past him, 
for some reason this is the second time we've seen it we saw it with that marcus morris three in the dallas game where you're up two and you help off the corner and give up a wide open corner three to a 40 percent three-point shooter like yeah and houston both, both, of all teams you should know that you don't do that when you're up two and with with less than a shot clock remaining because then you you have a zero percent chance like if you if you prevent the other team from shooting a three other than an and one you have a very low chance of losing and you all it's basically your you could think of it as like your field goal percentage as your chance of winning plus fouls and yeah. so they go so now okc gets that third that third Chris Paul play they go up one and then you're kind of like I, I was making a joke I think we, because we were talking about it before we started our broadcast about a how many fouls were going to be there and then house is kind of kind of they bring in Nerlens Noel for Gallinari for defensive purposes Gallinari trips Daniel House but House only makes one of the two free throws so then OKC is put in the position that Houston should have put themselves in where it's basically just you have a chance to to make a shot to to end the game and Chris Paul almost got it but didn't yeah and that last play before the Chris Paul one they start it I think there's maybe like 10 seconds left they start it with James Harden standing in the backcourt at basically his own free throw line and I guess the thought was you know do you get him worried that James Harden's going to catch the ball on the move you know to get going but James Harden particularly if he's being guarded by Lou Dort but again the way he's become like this caricature of himself it's like he can't shoot the ball without dribbling between his legs 15 times first and so at the end of the game he also won't take a mid-ranger he's not really going to do a good job of finishing at the rim so it's like he's not really that great of a last shot option for Houston and so they basically just have him stand in the backcourt you're not going to not guard him if he's back there and play four and four and it worked with House getting a nice drive and Nerland Noel who was put in for defense just trips him which was a terrible play but House only hits one out of two and then CP blew by Harden again and, and just missed this older the over the shoulder layup that could have won it but he was awesome in those last few minutes and Harden really again you know I thought maybe, you know, Houston might have a chance in these playoffs if Harden was the best offensive player in the playoffs. And I just, I, I think he's he's almost just gamed out the regular season. And once again, he's growing less and less effective as a playoff series goes on. We'll see what happens going forward. He may have a great next game. They might have some adjustments for him, but he just has so many holes in his game at this point. A couple of other kind of big picture things from this one. Both teams shot in the low, let's, well, I guess OKC wasn't in the low 30s on threes and both teams shot in the six in the 60s on free throws houston missed seven okc missed 11 free throws in this one and so you, you could talk about all the kind of the points that were left on the board for each team there uh jeff green had a nice performance 22 points five of eight from three uh he's playing center for a lot of the like for a portion of those minutes he, he is he just yeah. is playing center. i, I guess yeah, there, plays, yeah i guess he's you know, he's the he's the most centery player they have so i guess that's true when he's on the floor he's the center that's so it's just it's my brain yeah still i mean maybe you could call tucker the center they act those guys actually both closed the game together that's true uh and so we also saw some of darius basley not as much as i as i advocated for um but i thought over i thought that overall this was a, a better stephen adams game not not a great one but a better one yeah I actually was going to advocate later, but I'll bring it up now that they should take him out of the closing group. I agree. Because they got to have Dort out there. Gallo is still really good. And Adams, like the best thing that he does is his offensive rebounding, but like he, they're just doing a great job on him. Like he had two offensive rebounds and yeah, you know what? He's always seems to be around the offensive rebound, but they always just tip it away from him and they, he doesn't have, they never have a second guy there who might be able to get in and get that initial tip that he's getting. So it all seems for naught. And then, you know defensively i don't think he's given them that much 
they're not he's too slow to like slip the pick and get to the rim so they kind of don't really need to guard him that much he gets a few post-ups every now and then but you know that's not going to be a staple of their offense so why not go with gallo at center and you know i think you just try some of these other things like if adams really has it going uh i mean i have dort almost just be the center offensively i talked about that after game two to kind of be the role man on some of these plays uh and maybe you know you could maybe try Baisley as well i know you suggested him um and he was plus five in this one he, he was pretty decent um oh uh, yeah the other thing um that i think is important to the story of this game is that well, i mean so the game goes to overtime harden picks yeah. up his sixth foul and it's functionally over houston yeah. doesn't it, interestingly at the start of the ot it was gallo at center and they did take adams out right uh, because they decided hey we want all three of these guards out there shooter has it going well shea has it going well we're not going to take chris paul off the floor and dort's got to be out there for defense and so gallo is better than steven adams so we'll just go with that and we saw it earlier in the game you brought up paul getting hard in his fifth foul is that he committed two touch fouls at the end of the first half and star players just can't do that Harden sometimes he can't help himself but it didn't it burned them a little bit in regulation with some of those weak defensive plays not that Harden is that much more forceful on a, on a Chris Paul drive before that but it just then they're they're dead in the water like then that's exactly what happened the overtime they only scored three points and it was just done so so a few other things that uh, popped out to me here OKC they're starting to just make more and more adjustments every game to get a little bit better offensively I mean they're still not amazing but because this is a pretty fast-paced game with 116 possessions granted in overtime so they only had a 104 offensive rating but Houston had a 94 offensive rating of their own but what there's one of the things they're doing is if they set the pick and roll they're setting it higher out on the floor and then they're also doing one of the things we talked about which is just go right away treat whoever's switching onto you like he's the big man defender in a pick and roll not like he oh I just have a new matchup that I now have to iso against you got to attack more and that showed up in the stats as well on synergy where more of these are classified as pick and rolls because they're attacking right away as opposed to isos and so like Schroeder in particular, like he him getting downhill with speed, even Chris Paul, we saw him attacking Harden in those sorts of plays. So they are starting to find a, a few other things here that will work, but you know, it still is a lot of one-on-one stuff with these guards. Um, PJ Tucker is someone that they're going after more in space. And that's something I always thought the Warriors should do more of is they're like, oh, it's PJ Tucker. We can't attack him. Like, no, he actually is tough, but he's, they can't really keep up with a guard in a switch that much so they're starting to find uh, some uh, of these little issues uh, with houston the rockets only played robert covington 19 minutes part of that was due to foul trouble yeah. but uh house jeff green obviously was really good uh so uh, covington ended up being the odd man out uh, although they still do need his defense and and oh presumably he'll be heard from in this series speaking of defense ben mcelmore can't defend an iso to save his life no he's he's getting blown up and uh only played 18 minutes misses only two shots which were threes and houston they shot it poorly from three in this game they'll shoot it better this was a 30 percent three-point shooting but they're also in an ot game they only they gave up 53 point halves that's actually not bad for oklahoma city uh they also forced 16 turnovers including five by eric gordon and four from house eric gordon continues i just enjoy his game like his herky-jerky handle and stops and starts he actually has a great handle uh for an off guard and i, I really enjoy just the, watching him get to the basket he still can't hit a three-pointer to save his life though in this series the defense for okc in addition to playing dortmore they've started to eliminate some of these threes one of the things they've done is 
you know with houston putting guys in both corners the problem was that they were giving up corner threes with pj tucker on the strong side and so now when they're in that situation they're actually forcing james harden middle particularly when he's on the left side of the floor so forcing him to his right hand they're keeping him off that left-handed drive when someone other than dort gets switched on to him another thing they did that i'd like to see more of i'm not sure if this was intentional was they went with their best offensive group with the three guards out there whenever harden wasn't out there because you can take dort off the floor so it's kind of hard to get to that group and have dort out there at the same time as we see in the closing lineup so when harden is out why not just go with your best offensive group and see if you can really make some hay when he's out of the game that didn't work amazingly until obviously harden fouled out in the overtime anything else you got i got like a couple more here no i think that's about all i had the last thing that i have is yes they got away with it with paul missing a layup but having james harden out there oh, in a yeah. tie game with five fouls after he's just given up three blow buys in a row in the last minute in part because he has five fouls now all right i get it if you want to tell me that james harden is like actually a good defender that's not true daryl morey said some bullshit about how oh yeah well if it wasn't for his defensive reputation earlier in his career like he'd get all defense consideration now uh no daryl i i I got some film to show you the last minute of this game if, if you'd like to repeat that to me please but particularly with it tied where the possibility of Harden getting a foul and fouling out going into overtime is a problem because you need him for the overtime now they're in the bonus that foul probably would have lost the game anyway but seeing how he was defending and how concerned he was about fouling like you have to take him out of the game I know it's James Harden I know he's gonna get upset if he's not out there for the last possession but like sometimes you just got to do it like like winning the game is the most important thing uh you know Steph Curry got upset about that in a situation in 2016 against the Cavs on Christmas and you know stars are prickly about that and taking him out of the game at the end oh he's worked so hard on his defense he's gonna be upset blah blah but uh win the game let's go to the game that followed and actually overlapped to an extent with Rockets Thunder Lakers Blazers and for me the the takeaway the biggest takeaway there are more than a few is LeBron James being assertive as a scorer 38 points, 11 of 18 from the field, and another 12 of 17 from the line. He really struggled shooting free throws early and then started making them more consistently late. And that made the Lakers offense look totally different and significantly more viable. Oh, absolutely. And LeBron, 22 points in the first half, even though they actually trailed 57-53 at halftime to the Blazers when Damon CJ were going off. But yeah, the impetus that he had attacking the rim also hit a couple of threes, which really helped him uh, to overcome open things up they push it in transition but this is really the first time in the bubble that we've seen LeBron James attack the basket you know he'd really been stymied by Hassan Whiteside in a couple of the first uh, particularly in game one but even in game two and it was not the I'm gonna set guys up for threes it was I'm gonna get to the basket and I'm gonna score and he looked absolutely unstoppable he this is the first time he's looked like the guy that they're gonna need if they want to really truly go somewhere this offseason the most or postseason I should the say. most telling play to me was late relatively late in the game use of directors was on him and so many times recently going at kind of all stepping back for that 20 i always trace it back to the 2016 game seven when he drills that three over festus azili lebron when he has a big man on him he settles for that step back three and instead he drives right by nurkic and we haven't seen him do that in really like the last two years yeah no the night he faked that step back to his left i even called it on the live show like here comes step back to his left and he actually no he crossed it over he drove right to the bucket for a layup the free throw line as well 12 out of 17 from the foul line 
uh, as the Lakers. I mean, this really should have been much more of a blowout than it was if the Lakers hadn't missed 15 free throws Agreed. in this game. Now, the three-point shooting wasn't much better. And worth noting that, again, LeBron going four of eight is what even made it remotely respectable. The spot-up shooters, I mean, how many spot-up threes did they hit in this game? They had one off the entire bench. Danny Green and Caldwell Pope at least hit a few, though, right? Like, they combined for five. And that's, like, enough. Uh, particularly against this Portland defense. Well, and particularly uh, when yeah. AD is hitting, not threes, but hitting jump shots. He was six of seven yeah. from mid-range. Also, AD got to the line a bunch, and unusual for him, he missed a bunch. He was seven of 14 from the from the free throw line. And this was the most normal Davis has looked. It didn't even, it, it really hit his stride. I think it was in the third quarter. Things looked a lot better for him in that third. Two of three from around the basket, three of four from mid-range. And yeah, it was the Caruso uh, pick and pop with LeBron out of the game that yes. was actually getting him all these looks. Yeah, and that's a big part of why Caruso ended up with seven assists and was plus ten in this game was that they finally figured out something for the non-LeBron minutes. They were looking for a for an mo in those minutes, and the Caruso Davis pick and roll was the way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Just having a theory of what to go to, and Davis, you know, a lot of those mid rangers were from the foul line rather than twenty footers. It's a much easier shot there. Again, not all of these mid rangers are created equal, and when you have a defense as good as the Lakers and LeBron is out of the game you know that's fine you don't have to get like a dunk or a wide open three on every possession um but really i I mean even with all this you know the lakers 112 offensive rating in the end is not amazing against this portland defense portland they changed up to start hassan whiteside and yusuf nurkic together i still maintain though that they got to beat these guys offensively they need to just start gary trent and just hurt them it's not even just being offensive and starting gary trent it's I've harped on this going back to probably Iguodala in certain moments on the Warriors when when Kerr wouldn't start him, which is Gary Trent is their best perimeter defender. He's the best guy they have at defending LeBron James. When Gary Trent comes off the bench... A, if you're going to play him significant minutes, it's going to be mostly in, in bunches because that's the only way to do it. And two, it's going to have Gary Trent on the floor a lot when LeBron is not on the floor when his value is a lot less. And it's so it's completely ludicrous yeah. to not square up your best defender of the other team's definitive player for reasons. Yeah, they didn't bring Trent in until there are three minutes left in the third. And it, like he was, played 27 minutes. Like it's not even close to enough for Gary Trent when you're just desperately struggling to find anything off your bench. And, you know, the white side and Nurkic together thing, Nurkic really looks pretty gassed at this point which is not a surprise considering that he was this was his return to action and this Blazers team has also essentially been playing in the playoffs and playing Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum 43 minutes a game which is what they played in this one um every every other day for a month basically yeah yeah I mean and really high leverage stuff already it's every game has been a a must must win so I think they really need to stretch these Lakers out and outscore them because Damian Lillard it's just been too hard for him the other thing they need to do and they had great success with this at the end of the second they just never went back to it again I thought Scott's uh Scott's coached a pretty poor game in this one because the Lakers have really brought everyone way higher out on the floor but unlike a team like the Nets or Dallas they have enough mobility behind the play to still provide some sort of defense at the rim also when you have Whiteside and Nurkic out there together the Damian Lillard panic that he inspires way out on the floor is not nearly as bad because you're always going to have a a non-shooting rim protector underneath there so or a a rim protector guarding a non-shooter underneath but so Lillard was just killing Caruso in isolation at the end of the second Caruso was out there most of the time during the Lakers runs uh when they put up 40 in the third to uh really salt the game away 
and they never went back to that it was more pick and roll they even tried to like post up Lillard and Caruso once which all right I guess like I, I don't mind the creativity there but uh bringing the second guy into the action is not helping things for Portland and Damian Lillard like Caruso is much better fighting over screens just playing hard being scrappy but he can't stay with Damian Lillard in an isolation so I think the, they got to go with Trent starting instead of Whiteside that also would uh, allow Whiteside to come in and give Nurkic more of a breather the other thing that I thought hurt the the Blazers was Carmelo hitting like a few mid-rangers in the third which we knew was going to be fool's gold yeah and that led to him taking a few other shots when Lillard was on the floor and it it didn't work as well and you could go to it in certain minutes and I thought one of the other important stories of this game especially compounded by the news that Zach Collins is going to miss the remainder of the season he's having surgery because he has a hairline medial malleolus stress fracture and so we don't know when the surgery is going to be so Portland with Ariza out hood hood out they just don't have depth and Anthony Simons was terrible in this game oh yeah I mean that was another one where you're just like like Hazoni only played six minutes and Simons played 14 but and I know Hazoni hasn't been good either but I mean Simons probably made like six or seven defensive mistakes just like failing to rotate and uh he really the one skill that he brings is off the dribble three-point shooting he's not a good spot up three-point shooter and you know he wasn't really close on any of these threes either so that was uh that was a concern yeah and so his only played six minutes when gabriel who had previously started came off the bench committed two quick fouls and only played four and yeah he was playing backup center at the end of the second quarter um i mean i might even consider giving him a few more minutes there as well just to try and get a little bit more mobile of a group out there but i I, think but they're at the point where terry sats has got to start trying shit but uh, like you got to get more minutes out there with your best lineup like they can't score right now that's their problem they got to go with that best offensive group and also playing Whiteside and Nurkic kind of give it gives to me gives the Lakers a little bit of an out and we'll, we'll see where the where the series goes oftentimes series get smaller but it'll, it'll, be, it'll be interesting for the Lakers why on earth they're playing Markeith Morris over Jared Dudley right now I really don't get it like Jared Dudley is a 40% spot up shooter they desperately need spot up shooting I actually think that that Jared Dudley is a better team defender Agreed. than Morris. Now he is slow. Morris has a little bit more physicality. Maybe they're worried that like Carmelo is going to really hurt them or something. But Markeith Morris is doing absolutely nothing out there offensively. Uh, now Kyle Kuzma is pretty good. Uh, he only played 23 minutes in the, this one. I think you could up his minutes a little bit. Um, and he's been very solid defensively. They went with J.R. Smith, I think, just to try to get at least a guy who used to be able to shoot and would have some gravity, but he hasn't hit anything yet in this series. I think they're negative 22 in his minutes well, in and, the series per Anthony Slater. And then the other interesting piece of news in this one was that Rajon Rondo was actually cleared to play, but then was a late scratch due to back spasms, so not the same issue. And how Frank Vogel uses him in game four will be very important, not so much for game four, but for the Rocket series and for potentially the Clippers or whoever in the conference finals after that, if they make it. Well, and particularly if he's out there and he's got to guard Dame Lillard or CJ McCollum, I'm hunting the crap out of that matchup. Because the one good thing that you can say about the, this Lakers group now with Kuzma, the way that he's played, they don't really have anyone that's just sucks defensively that you can go after. And Rondo is going 
going to give him that but if he had the back issues here it, it wouldn't surprise me if that that lingers for a little well, bit and then the other thing is remember part of why we thought rondo might have value in this series is because they've struggled so much offensively in the non-lebron minutes but then they found something with the caruso ad pick and roll and that's very similar to what we thought they would do with rondo anyway because rondo has that existing chemistry from davis back from their new orleans here yeah that play they may they're gonna need to come up with a solution to that play usually it maybe it's bringing another defender into the action to take davis when he pops maybe you switch it and then double team davis which he's struggled to deal with once he actually catches the ball against the guy that you switch on because cruz is probably not going to beat your switch guy off the dribble so there are some things they can do on that but they completely failed to adjust when i mean the lakers probably ran that pay, play 13 times in a row when lebron was out of the game and they they couldn't stop it uh, and nurkic got a intentional foul with like you know it was in the second quarter it was his first foul but of course you were prescient and you're like well watch out here and of course he ends up having to go to the bench at the end of the by quicking picking up two other fouls you're if you're a center just never ever ever intentionally foul because you never know you could pick up those fouls pretty quickly and i think that's about all i've got on this one i guess the last question for you is does uh, what is your conception of the series going forward here i think that this was this was a blowout in the making that just never got all the way there and i think that's really where this is going i actually see some parallels between this series and the one we just talked about where i think the, the talent level is probably favored in five however it is easy to see either a good game from like lillard or in the case of okc like chris paul or whoever or a bad game from the favorites making it a six or seven but i don't have much doubt on who wins the series so it's it's more just a duration question now i would agree and if portland was about to have game four at home you might feel better about their chances of sure. pushing it to six i mean it did feel a little bit like a team that was out of options as we were watching it but then as we've talked about it a little more more i'm like now nah, you know there actually is some stuff that that they can do yeah, here but what and- are the odds that they actually start gary trent <sighs> I think it's like one yeah. and three, honestly. Like it's it is wild, but I mean their backs are against the wall. Like that that's the especially with these neutral site games. Teams need to treat two one like it's three one because you're not you're not getting any of those structural advantages ever. I mean, I guess here's what they're thinking though. This is their problem. They're like, well, if we start Trent, then that means Carmelo is going to have to guard AD. And first of all, no, maybe you could just have Carmelo guard JaVale. And you know what? Fine. Like you can't score. So this Lakers team doesn't have that much shooting. You can do some double teaming and outscore them on the other end. And if they want to start JaVale McGee against that awesome offensive group, let them do it. They, they got to get unstuck offensively here. Like you can't be having these, you know, 100 offensive ratings in this series and expect to win so that's where and they can't do anything to be better defensively because they suck well, and it's so, also not like having, <laughs> let's say theoretically, heaven forbid, the choice was starting Gary Trent over Carmelo Anthony. I think that would make them way better defensively and better offensively. Melo, sure, he can he can eat in the non-Lillard minutes. You give him and CJ some opportunities to whoever cooks better. But there, he Melo can hit open shots. But the problem is he he sometimes does that, like in this one where he's nine of twenty, and so the hot the hot stretch leads into a cold stretch, and right. it's not necessary when you have Lillard. You already have your offensive identity. Yeah, I agree with you there. So hopefully they'll do that or at least play that lineup more minutes. And Nurkic has got to play better too. I mean, that's zero offensive rebounds, five fouls, three turnovers, four of 10. So they need more from him offensively as well. But, you know, a lot of what they've done really just pressuring Lillard so far on the floor. He was rushing shots. He still somehow was five of 11 from three. But the other thing too is that those Lillard 
drives have really been taken away in part because they're playing so big i mean that's just that lineup has had so much effectiveness like it's completely unstoppable against anyone that they played and maybe the lakers can stop it they're a really good defensive team but i think you got to go down swinging with that group that really has propelled you here and you know, is to me your five best players uh, out there and then also you can at least avoid if Nurkic gets in foul trouble you can plug Whiteside in there and still be okay uh, as opposed to both those guys potentially getting in foul trouble which is what happened in the the first half um the Celtics Sixers series is over it was the last two minutes of Brett Braun's 76ers coaching career in all likelihood took about 25 minutes Doris Burke likened it to a bad date that just wouldn't end as they had like a bunch of reviews and fouls in, in you know down by like six points the entire time uh, with two minutes left in the game but their season is over we'll talk more do a post-mortem on them later on i think we've gone on for a really long time here already and in that nets series uh, toronto put up a buck 50 on them that series is over but kyle lowry suffered what looked to be an ankle sprain although there was some later reporting and jeff stotts indicated his thought that it might be somewhat of a mid-foot issue concerning that they ruled lowry out of the game granted they're way up in the series so they had no reason to bring him back but hopefully nothing that's going to keep him out of what's going to be an awesome boston toronto series that's actually going to start on thursday they are moving these series up which is nice to get them over with more quickly if they can and get guys out of the bubble faster so we'll of course preview that series at a later point as well all right indiana miami still got to talk about orlando and milwaukee as well this one available to dunked on prime subscribers on saturday when we recorded this since we are not tethered to the demands of advertisers who wanted us to do shows monday through friday so we're able to give you a little bit more versatility here for Downtown Pride subscribers. And of course, we'll be continuing to do that. And Downtown is going to subscription four days a week starting on September 8th. Let's roll it here in what was a 124-115 heat victory over Indiana. It was a little closer than that. Down the end, Indiana within two, three times in the fourth after trailing by 16 at halftime. But the heat hang on. And I think while Indiana has probably played better in each game in this series, ultimately, the little things uh, proved to be their undoing in this game. They're just not as systematized, not as disciplined, not as smart of a basketball team as the Miami Heat are. Yeah, and it's a shame because I thought there were, especially Malcolm Brogdon, some Pacers that did well. I thought that they defended better as a team and, and especially in the later portion of the game, started doing a better job attacking Miami's weak defenders. So I thought there were some real gains here, but the problem is you get some real gains in a series that you're down 3-0, then you feel better and you either lose 4-0 or you lose 4-1. And as as well as, you know, and we'll talk about the Heat plenty, of course, we'll also talk about them in the next round. I do want to start with Brogdon. I thought that his aggressiveness made a really big difference and also the juxtaposition for me between Brogdon's aggressive offense and the worst parts about Victor Oladipo's game where he felt especially and Seth brought this up well but he felt too comfortable playing hero ball at the end when he wasn't the one who had been the hero <laughs> no it's really true and I mean Victor probably took six or seven really bad shots in this game again Malcolm Brogdon had 34 points and 14 assists He's 11 of 17, 4 of 7 from 3, and he did not lead the Indiana Pacers in field goal attempts. 
nor did TJ Warren. It was, in fact, Victor Oladipo, especially egregious, considering that Brogdon played 43 minutes and Oladipo only played 34. Both of them had five fouls throughout a, a good portion of the fourth. And Oladipo, one of two from the foul line, Brogdon, eight of eight from the foul line. And you know, so that may maybe equalizes that a little bit, but Oladipo still, just, you're right, it was absolute hero ball from him too much. You know, they're down 16 in the first, and he decides he's going to get it back by taking a running 20 footer going to his right out of an iso contested and yeah when he was the main pick and roll guy when teams would be in a drop coverage against them as opposed to miami switching okay you take the mid-ranger when you're wide open off the pick and roll yeah fine don't mind that shot too much contested early in the clock against an iso when you're not the main guy anymore it really it was well, a big problem to me. and especially there were some egregious no pass possessions and yeah. i thought that especially when the offense had been flowing pretty well there were even some they, they did some nice ball movement where it was even like uh, i saw the one in the fourth quarter ended up being a missed shot i think that was by holiday where someone flashed into the paint caught the ball but didn't intend to shoot it was just to generate some a little bit of movement in miami's defense and create an open look so they're doing better movement better ball movement better player movement offensively and then those possessions just fly in the face of it and weren't that good you know it's not like it you know if it's kevin durant doing that sure you know like he he's an unbelievable player and when he's been you know like at his at his peak physically victor oladipo is not that guy right now and like i think one way of talking about this is going just briefly through the shot charts for oladipo and brogdon so start with brogdon five of seven in the restricted area also got to the line eight times then nothing in floater range two of three from mid-range four of seven from three then you switch to victor oladipo well uh, don't forget this 14 assists yeah two and oh, victor yeah. oladipo had one yeah four four of six in the restricted area for Oladipo, he did do a decent job then, and also Oladipo only got to the line for two free throws, which he split. 101 from floater range, missed all four of his mid-rangers, and then... Each of which was an awful ugh. shot, by the way. Every single one of those was a terrible shot. Yeah, and then three of ten from three, uh, mostly above the break, missed both of his corner shots. And so, I mean, you could see some of the aggressiveness there, you could see, and it's not even necessarily... When Oladipo drove and was, like, looking up, was doing things, I, I didn't think it was terrible, but it was just that he has this, you know, like, we talked about it with Anthony Edwards and so many the other guys are like if you if you took out the 10 percent of his worst shots that it would look a lot better but those shots still count those shots are still there yeah and the other piece of kind of the cruel twist of fate for me in indiana's game was they did a very good job overall on the defensive glass i thought that they it was a more concerted effort really a, a, a team-wide thing i thought that warren did a better job the guards did a better job but then in the fourth quarter in like the last two minutes that huge possession where bam out of bio grabs two ended up being only two of seven but it's just like like, oh god those chickens coming home to roost yeah those but those are the only two offensive rebounds they had also jimmy butler was massive on the offensive glass yes. with four offensive rebounds as he this was a very willing the team to victory jimmy butler kind of game with 27 points 5 of 16 17 of 20 from the field they got a lot of stuff to talk about from the heat but since the pacers are down 03 you know to me this is the first time and part of that was with brogdon playing this great game that's a, a big reason why they're able to get there but this is the first time to me that the placers actually played close to well enough to win in this series and you know 57 percent from two three pointers uh, were fine offensive rating 111 they got smashed in the end by some great 11 to 23 point shooting in the first half by miami that was just too much to overcome now there still were a bunch of little details that they messed up that we'll get to but this is the unfortunate thing to me and I think is a, a an interesting contrast to draw between these two coaches. Nate McMillan, we said, John 
Ollinger and I talked about this before the series. Hey, they should start Justin Holiday. They'll look a lot better when they do that. They can do some more switching uh, defensively when you've got all these like-sized guys. You know, make Miami doesn't have a great one-on-one creator. It beat you that way. You can take away a lot of that off-the-ball game with Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero, and and take away some of that backdoor stuff. You're when you're not as worried about uh, any back screens and stuff like that. So they started. They switched more. They still should have switched even more than that, right? So they they're you know they're kind of like maybe they're now 70% of where they need to be when they started the series at 25% of where they needed to be and some of that is the players and the decision making some of it is the coaching decisions and just the way that they've stuck to kind of one system much more all year but you know there's still some little things right like for example Duncan Robinson sets a back screen Victor Oladipo doesn't want to help off of that because Duncan Robinson is killing him uh in the second quarter and so Jimmy Butler just gets like an easy back door for lip but like the two guys guarding them are Victor Oladipo and TJ Warren, TJ Warren. Why, just switch that why can't you just switch that play and like those guys are all like size you got this group now you don't have Aaron Holiday out there anymore even Miles Turner can get out there and switch a little bit I understand if you don't want to switch every time with your center but at least you've got uh, all these guys who are shooting guard size and above so why not just switch that and then you know there's a, a time when they got a flare screen for Dragic for a three same thing just two guards screening for each other and then finally tj warren i don't know if they called this that they're going to start switching or whether he just decided but he actually got a steal on that play when he did actually switch so uh they did switch more turner was out late clock that final bam offensive rebound was when turner was switched out late clock i thought turner actually did a really nice job switching uh but so these are these are all the things that were made down 2-0 in game three of a playoff series. And they got close to where, to where they need to be. They're competitive. They could have won this game. And if this were game one of the playoff series, it's not the end of the world. But it's game three. Contrast yeah. that. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to contrast it with Spo, but if you had no, no, I think I, I think that's great. But I, I want to put a little bit more emphasis on the starting five because we yeah. we they looked very good together. And then also McMillan didn't go back to it enough. Like that group made right. sense together. And then it was just well, like, well, so here's what happened, right? I, they they, they technically were down 16 to 8 at the start with that group, but they looked good. Yeah, and it was Miami unsustainable three-point shooting. Like, they were just drilling tougher looks than they were getting during most— And there were a couple of botch coverages, to be sure. It wasn't just, like, all contested. But, uh, yeah, I, the, the process was good. The results were not, and then still went away from it. Yeah, they never went back to it really in the first half. And then they they went back to close it. They went back to it more in the second half. But I thought, you know, that was the group that was out there when they made a nice 12-2 run right at the start of the third. Uh, You know, they were getting good shots. They had four steals in that first quarter stretch. And even though they trailed 16-8 at the end of that, like they were really defending them a little bit. And then they they went away from that. But, uh, you know, they they minimized McConnell's role. He only played five minutes in the first half. That was it. Aaron Holiday played 22 all off the bench. I thought he gave them more offensively and more of a ball handling role again as we predicted might be the case so uh and then also just the overall discipline from the Pacers right like 11 to 23s for Miami but then they also fouled four times on three-point shots as well in the first half or just little plays where for example Miami gets a baseline out of bounds with two on the shot clock quick high load of Butler for a layup and then Indiana down four season on the line down two zero in the series 42 seconds left they come out of a timeout and not everyone is on the same page about what they're running you know like there's so it just the players the coach they're just not as locked in and then you compare that to Eric Spolstra who I don't think he hit every button right in this game but he started not only the playoffs he started the bubble by going to BAM 
at center, right? Like if he starts this playoff series with Myers Leonard or Kelly Olenek in the starting lineup trying to guard and they're trying to guard TJ Warren on the perimeter or something, he just goes to what he normally goes to. Maybe this series is much more competitive right now and the Heat have a dogfight on their hand as opposed to they started off with their best stuff and it took the Pacers two and a half games to catch up to them. And get switching earlier also put more on Dragic and Tyler Hero as ball handlers and that I think that worked well. Hero playing well enough allowed them to shift Kendrick Nunn out of the rotation. I think that has helped defensively pretty significantly. Also Iguodala moving into the closing lineup, you know, not the greatest shooter in the world, but an incredibly intelligent defender who can make life hard on a lot of these kind of like-sized pacers. I thought that far from a perfect game for Iguodala, but I thought he'd well. And yeah, let's see the idea of what is your best five? Who makes sense with that group? And we've always had this theory that coaches usually know. And it's it's kind of how they like Kerr would almost never start that group like he would he, except for that Rocket series where they kind of they knew where they had to go and it's always striking to me when like when you could see how long how much desperation it takes let's put it that way for a coach to go to his best five and Aaron Holiday didn't have a terrible offensive game but you could see his limitations defensively at various moments and that's why he shouldn't be a starter in this series and also shifting Holiday meant that they didn't need as much TJ McConnell and I I think that was largely a good decision though it's not like Indiana's bench is so deep and also like I, I think it's worthwhile to discuss another important dynamic in this game was the massive difference in free throws and I'm sure a lot of Pacers fans I mean there's this idea I've talked about announcers sometimes exacerbating this that the difference in free throws is some sort of thing of refs going out to get them and I thought there were the you know the balance of calls I thought maybe there were a few against the Pacers there were more bad calls against the Pacers than there were against the Heat but the more aggressive team and the team that wasn't fouling a ton of three-point shooters was the team that got to the line more yeah absolutely I mean Jimmy Butler is a high free throw player Brogdon has done a nice job of getting the line with his drives but I mean there's no one else on Indiana who is creating any kind of contact Warren is a notoriously low foul player low foul drawing player I should say Turner doesn't draw any fouls if you compare him to Adebayo you know they don't have Duncan Robinson on the perimeter who gets you know two or three three shot fouls a game it seems like and so that's a a big problem for them and Jimmy Butler they've done a really nice job of working within his limitations letting him operate around the basket and yeah he was only five out of 16 his jumper was off again but he's able to get just enough down there and get fouled a lot because Miles Turner is extremely concerned about these shooters coming off the DHO so he's got to stick pretty close to Bam and that lets Butler kind of be the biggest baddest guy under the rim on a lot of these possessions and with the offensive rebounds with the foul drawing decent but not great finishing he's able to to take advantage of that I also thought Goran Dragic again looked really good in this game oh yeah 24 points six assists five of ten from three and he also had a couple just near misses there and that is really important for what looks like an inevitable series against the Bucks because Milwaukee, Milwaukee, one of the things they give up are, you know, those off the dribble threes. And Dragic doesn't take, he takes a lot of them as catch and shoots. But just having a point guard who who can handle those shots and who can take, who can kind of stretch the defense there is really important. And also, I think the ball movement by Miami has been, has looked a lot better with some of these lineups that they've been throwing out there. So yeah, I think that he is a potential key. He's been a key to this series, and I think he'll be a key to the next one as well. And yeah, I mean, Miami. Oh, well, key- and Dragic quickly, sure. uh, defensively. Looks- yes, pretty good moving his feet even with that big brace on he had a couple times cutting off full depot they actually went at him on that final play once they figured out what the hell they were doing on that out of bounds uh down four and he got in front of tj warren on the pick and roll they tried to pick on him and, and they end up getting the seal there so i think he's uh he's not looking like 
absolute meat now indiana doesn't have awesome creators you know is he gonna go guard Giannis next series like is he gonna go guard chris middleton next series uh, maybe not but the bucks you know don't put a lot of stress on him i think he's looked really really good he's looked like a real starting quality point guard and credit the organization for getting him back preserving him until this point i mean who knows whether he would have even started had it not been for kendrick nunn but i think that's another one who's against a lot of the rotation but that's another one where whether they always plan to make this move or whether they just saw a good Dragic look and decided to make it, uh, it's worked out for them. Do we want to talk about Kelly Olynyk's spectacular flop? Though he did get hit in the face. Oh, oh well. Oh, on the the successful challenge. That is one thing that Nate McMillan is awesome at is challenging. Like he was, he had like had like he was like his first seven in a row or something this year. Uh, and then that was just a great challenge because it was going to be two free throws for Miami on a loose ball foul, and instead it became two free throws for Indiana on a loose ball foul, and they kept a foul off a turnaround on that play. That was a great challenge. Yeah, it really was. And yeah, overall for Miami, I thought that the, I mean, especially I mean, if the three point shooting had continued for the first half but you wouldn't have expected that i mean overall 13 to 33 is totally fine I actually could end up seeing that volume go a little bit higher but they also got to the free throw line so much that it was a little bit of a different story yeah. and so yeah I, I think that they are looking very good going into the series they're also going to probably get rest we don't know exactly what the timing of the second round is going to be in relation and the other thing to kind of talk about with this series was there was this brief moment on saturday where it looked like demontis simona so he 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 joined the bubble and so I was very excited. I'm like, hey, Demontis Bonus makes the makes the Pacers better, makes them a more interesting team. And then got the clarification from Woj, which was which was what I always should have thought in the first place. But it's that he's Sabonis is in the bubble, but he he hasn't probably been able to be doing basketball stuff for when you're when you're rehabbing plantar fasciitis. And so he's he's just joining the bubble to be with his teammates. He's not actually going to play in the games. And so that kind of was going to shift it for me. Of oh, it'd be fun to see the series go longer and see Sabonis, but he's not coming back, so that's not happening. So. I got a few more notes uh, on this one here. Another potentially small coaching thing. And now Miles Turner did play 38 minutes in this game. And I thought McMillan did a good job at going back to him for Sampson late in the third when they make a run. But then McMillan takes out Turner and he probably needed to get a rest at some point, you know, playing your center for 14, 15 straight minutes. That's not that great. But he takes him out and the the heat had made a concerted effort to really get out of bio going after i think he had two points in game two you know on some of those catches closer at the elbow not so much the like three-point line elbow like the real elbow and then you know take a hard dribble and go score and turner really snuffed that out i thought he did a great job on him in one-on-one defense but then he goes out they run the same play or, or two plays in a row just get it to out of bio at the, at the elbow one dribble hard go right through samson for two buckets and then the next play they run a screen for out of bio and samson tries to get through it and fouls him and he makes two free throws and so that's six quick points they bring turner back in but like that stretch could have lost him the game right early in the fourth you know and so Another one of those little things where you can say, hey, you know what? Like, we're going to match up Miles Turner with Bam Adebayo every single minute that he's in the game, and we're going to make them post, you know, we'll match up Jakar Sampson against Kelly Olenek instead, uh, and, uh, or Derek Jones instead, so he can't kill us this way. And, you know, that six quick points, uh, and yeah, okay, you get Turner back in, but you just lost six points. And I think the counter the other way is we've been drawing this, you know, comparison between the two coaches is that Derek Jones Jr. at center hadn't worked as well in the series. And so more more Kelly Olenek, less Derek Jones Jr. at center. I think that made a lot of sense. 
Um, the one thing that I do question with Spo is not going back to Duncan Robinson late. He did have five fouls, Agreed. but it's like Hero was getting cooked by Brogdon anyway. I thought Robinson was like, has been okay-ish on Brogdon. He's at least got more size. I mean, that was kind of the problem for Hero was Brogdon is just able to get a shoulder by him and shoot over him with his superior size and strength. So, uh, and, and Robinson really, you know, gives them some so much more to me than Hero offensively. I mean, Hero... Well, especially because they don't need yeah. Hero's shot creation in those lineups. They already have guys right. for that. Yeah, I mean, they've got Dragic, they've got Butler already to run some pick and roll, so do the off-ball stuff. And, you know, Hero's decent at that, but he's still not as good as Robinson. So that was, if Indiana had come back, maybe that could have been something you point to. And Robinson didn't close out their game on Thursday either. It never came back in in the fourth. So that's that'll be something to watch, maybe particularly because I think Duncan Robinson against the Bucks is a unique threat, but perhaps Spo just trusts Hero more defensively. I mean, Hero, like competes harder maybe but i don't know that he's been better at least in this series we'll see uh, particularly against the bucks you might want to have more size out there but that's just something to monitor uh andre godala continues even though he's not a huge offensive player to just be a positive player for them he just always makes the right pass in a, a ping ping ball movement situation you know he'll just take a couple of dribbles activate the defense keep it moving he doesn't make mistakes defensively he's a good communicator particularly in the switching which he has a ton of experience with it doesn't surprise me that they've done this switching with Andre Iguodala there now because he really fits into that system well and they know that um Victor Depot, I mentioned that play where he doesn't help on the back screen and Butler gets the layup he just got his ass kicked defensively by Duncan Robinson in the second which is part of why it was annoying me that they didn't go back to Holiday and put Oladipo on somebody else at that point because I mean here's the sequence first he just gives up a straight back door in like a top lock situation and he doesn't you know he doesn't have help behind him you can't just top lock a guy because remember Turner is up on Adebayo so there's no real backdoor help so he gives up a layup there to Robinson then he comes down and takes that terrible running jumper uh, from two-point range then he gives up a three-shot foul in the corner to Robinson uh and then he just loses Duncan Robinson again for no reason uh and gives up another three so it was really just about as rough of a stretch and Duncan Robinson's a really good player like he causes problems but Victor Depot did not do a good job in that sequence I mean there are just all these sort of like little two or three play sequences where Indiana just seems like they're they're playing pretty neck and neck with these guys and then you'll get like two or three plays in a row where they just screw up or they commit some bad fouls and they're just not disciplined and that's what, what cost them this game let's jump to Bucks Magic first game of the day on Saturday might be the last time we talk about this series yeah I don't think we're going to talk about it too long I, I think that this game kind of you know I think we've seen this overall from the series it mostly not entirely has gotten form I mean especially given some of the late running Orlando ended up shooting 19 of 40 on threes in this game which is not something that we expected though their shooting personnel has actually gotten friendlier with some of the absences but Milwaukee sealed off sealed off the rim again only 12 shots in the restricted area for Orlando in this game and 14 free throws so not getting to the line that much and then Milwaukee 117 offensive rating made enough of their threes I thought that you know this this looked like what I expected the rest of the series to look like I think so I mean only even two of six in the first half when it was basically a 30 point lead and the game was over at that point Orlando came back with some really good shooting as you mentioned that 19 to 40 three-point shooting but I mean worth noting that even with 19 out of 40 three-point shooting the overall numbers for Orlando in terms of their offensive efficiency were pretty poor here yeah that's what happens when you only shoot 42 percent on twos and I believe that's the second game in a row where they've been around that level on two-pointer 
Yeah, and so uh, the talk uh, Eric Nem wrote about this for the Athletic after Game One uh, and then Game Two was, hey, we actually made some like matchup specific adjustments here to try and take stuff away from Vucevic, for example. And Vucevic still killed him in Game One anyway. And Nikola Vucevic is a good player. He he's, wasn't as good in this game, but he's not going to beat the Milwaukee Bucks four games out of seven. I think like your base defense is probably good enough against Orlando. And this is an, it will be an interesting conundrum here for Mike Budenholzer. It's something that came up in the toronto series of hey you know is the base defense good enough do you need in that game five they start switching against Kawhi. they're doing the extreme thing where they're just not going to let him go right under any circumstances he ends up beating that down the end and so a lot of people saying hey maybe they should just stick with their base defense now budenholzer of course gets pilloried even on this program at times and i just try to be even-handed about it of not adjusting enough and i think that was definitely the case for him for the hawks against the cleveland teams in 2015 and 2016 but it's he may have gone too far i thought in the series against toronto where they were really very good against toronto i thought most of the series i thought their defense was good enough to win most of that series it's just they couldn't score and so they did switch up on defense and and Kawhi hit a couple of big threes over brooke lopez and and uh, they might have been threes a couple of them might have been like long twos but and they end up losing that series so i'm it's just something to watch i mean against orlando it probably wasn't going to matter ultimately but the and the base defense is good enough you know just the milwaukee is a team that does a few things incredibly well and the question of do they just stick with that or do they switch up a little bit they do have better personnel to switch up this this year too with marvin williams it's just gonna be something to monitor but not really a stress issue in this series particularly yeah i think that's totally fair what else you got on this one i don't i don't have a whole heck of a lot on this one um anything anything else that you think is per, let me see go through no i mean i think i, I think not a surprise this has been true it's, it's true montrez harrell as well and a few other guys that bledsoe is looking more like himself every game still not there yet but you know more more like it middleton had his best offensive game so far 17 points on 17 shots, albeit, but I, I thought that he lo- he looked more comfortable out there, and he's still you know helping defensively and everything else. So yeah, I mean the Bucks are you could say they're rounding into form, but when you think I mean that that yeah they're they're going to be going into the fire pretty soon against Miami. Yeah, I've got a few more here uh, in this one. Giannis was awesome, and we talked about how he missed a lot of bunnies in the last game. He didn't miss any bunnies in this game. No. And the Bucks, I mentioned Orlando's two of six shooting at the rim in the first half. The Bucks were fifteen of fifteen at the rim. And Giannis alone was ten of ten. Half. Yeah. And oh no, sorry, he's ten of ten total, not just. Yeah, yeah. So he did a great job, just euro stepping around guys. The turnovers had really hurt the Bucks, and they're able to clean that up enough. Their, their transition compared to the Magic was much better. James Ennis getting ejected didn't help although they're already down 20 at that point so he and marvin williams got into a fracas i wouldn't expect any suspensions from that but considering that ennis is one of the two forward size players that they have remaining to them at this point uh, that's uh was a little bit of a problem and markel fultz really struggled in this game remember he got off really well in the first quarter of game one and he had a bunch of turnovers in the first quarter he had a couple of fouls uh, or he had some indiscipline on the perimeter i I should say he went for an eric bledsoe pump fake and gave up a drive as bledsoe was much better driving to the basket in this game he fouls george hill on a tough leaning mid-ranger at one point and then whenever he enters the ball into the post they basically just go double team with his man immediately so 
they've started to adjust to him and Marco Fultz he's given the magic more this year than expected considering he just didn't play basically for two years but if you're talking about him being like a quality starter a guy who's going to be able to play in the playoffs really push this team forward the wake me up when he gets the the jump shot figured out i mean from three it's still just uh rather unsightly well and it's it's also creates so many opportunities for the defense like if he throws an entry pass i mean what 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 is he gonna do what is he gonna do to kill you if you like if he throws it into vooch are you gonna and then you just double with that guy is he gonna cut in for a layup or something like that no it's you, you there are all these things and it's I, it wouldn't surprise me at all if, because you bring up the severity of strengths versus severity of weaknesses, if Markel Fultz, unless the jump shot improves, is a better 82-game player than a 16-1, because teams don't do opponent-specific adjustments unless that player knows things really well, generally game by game in the regular season, yeah. but in a playoff series, it happens very quickly. Yeah, I mean, they'll adjust a little bit, but guys aren't as locked in on that stuff to playing the same guys to game game after game. Chris Middleton had a much better first half, uh, although he ultimately finished only uh, 17 points on 17 shooting possessions, so it wasn't that great in the end for him, but he did enough in that crazy shooting Bucks first half. Uh, the Bucks still, you know, I mean, Giannis was great. He also only played 31 minutes. Middleton only played 31 minutes. Lopez only played 30, so I mean, they, they take it pretty easy here the magic you know are playing their guys more and they really still never got within 15 uh for any length of time so i i do still want to see whether these guys can ramp up their minutes there's no reason of course to to do that now when you're up 30 after the first half and, and you see how good these bucks could be in the first half when they're hitting their threes i'm still a little concerned that there's not that much there when they're not hitting their threes particularly in the half court the gary clark Kem birch unit got absolutely torched by Giannis in particular end of the first beginning of the second when Giannis comes back in for that stint with the bench guys although the Bucks still do some minutes without either Giannis or Middleton on the floor they are gonna have to get rid of those at some point again those guys are only playing 30 minutes right now so it against the magic that's not going to kill you but at some point they're going to face a team that's going to require those sorts of adjustments DJ Augustin was really good at, again in this one, hitting some really difficult mid-rangers and yeah. four of eight from three. He had 24 points as well. Terrence Ross was good. He was four of seven for three. All the coming from three really in the second half at garbage time when it was uh, mostly over. Uh, the, there was a hilarious sequence where Terrence Ross got another one of those back doors and Brooke Lopez didn't see him and react fast enough. Remember in game one, Ross was just curling off of these screens because they were taking it away and Brooke Lopez was too far out on the floor guarding Vucevic and Ross got a bunch of backdoor layups early in the fourth quarter of game one and so clearly they've adjusted to have Lopez closer but Lopez wasn't paying attention gives up the backdoor layup I think he was just so mad himself then he got taken out and I'm pretty sure they caught this on camera where he actually it was like at the top of the screen as they're just showing the action but you could see him go back into the tunnel and just like slam a chair into the ground <laughs> it was amazing uh he should learn from Ennis Cancer, who uh broke his wrist that way that uh chair-based violence it can be risky uh in frustration but uh fortunately he he uh uh, did not I, i'm pretty sure that that was in sequence right after a, he I gave think up it that was backdoor. yeah that memory serves uh and then robin lopez still can't guard vucevic in the post but that doesn't matter and there's not really anyone else in this eastern conference that is going to cause problems for robin lopez in the post at this point since philly is uh, about done here uh and that would describe us as well if you haven't already please subscribe to dunked on prime dunked on dot supporting cast.fm link is here in the show notes Thanks to everyone who has subscribed, everyone who has given us these really wonderful comments on social media. Of course, I'm retweeting that. 
as well as a, a shameless self-promoter as as an independent we kind of have to be but uh we'll be back monday night for dunked on as regularly scheduled we'll talk to you all then